Hi, I'm Heather Morrison. On each show, guests share stories from their lives in theater, film, and TV. So grab your tights and tap shoes and meet the geeks in the green room. My guest today is Mark Simon, story artist and director. In fact, Mark has been called the godfather of storyboarding. He is also an author of several books, most recently his memoir, Attacked. Mark and his family fought extreme bullying and physical attacks. They defeated the gang in court and is the first person in the country to successfully use a law holding parents legally responsible for the violent actions of their kids. Mark also takes us through the development of his career from drawing as a kid to getting involved with theater and later developing his successful storyboarding career that he has now. Check out the show notes for links to Mark's storyboarding and memoir websites, links to anti-bullying groups, as well as all kinds of fun stuff we talked about in the show. Welcome, Mark Simon, to Geeks in the Green Room. <laughs> I love that title. That's great. Oh, thank you. It took some work to find something that wasn't taken because I come from community theater and none of the green rooms I ever was in were green, but we hung out in them. And it's funny because it is a, a lot like high school when you, <laughs> no matter what age you are, hanging out with other theater people is a, is a lot like that. Well, I've got two stories about that before we get into everything else. Cause it's oh, yes. Okay, at, Nickelodeon, at Nickelodeon, our green room was orange. Because Nick Orange, right? Oh, right, right. And I was back in the '80s when I was living in LA. I was we were doing a late night shoot at a gay Korean bar off of Hollywood Boulevard, right? So put all that together, and it was it was an overnight thing, and it was pretty simple for my art department. So on my way to set, I grabbed. I, I went to a store and I grabbed this big pile of comic books. And I brought him in and I tossed him down onto one of the tables in, in the area where everyone was relaxing just off of set. And they disappeared in an instant. But not just the art department. The grips grabbed them. Costumers <laughs> grabbed them. Uh, the gaffers grabbed them. That's when I realized how many geeks there are working in this industry. So that kind of made up green room proved how geeky we are. <laughs> That's awesome that you actually start with a green room story because somewhere in the interview at some point I say, oh, do you have a green room story? And some people say, well, not specifically because we didn't really go in the green room. I could, I could talk about hanging out like at the craft services or something right. like that or working with somebody who was famous and they were on as a guest appearance. And that's always kind of exciting. But yeah, so this is a thrill for me because you are a pro, very seasoned career author. You're just so creative and prolific. It's just really exciting to have the opportunity to talk to you. Thanks. Well, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. From what I've read, it sounds like you're having fun all the time. How many people can say that about their job? Probably not enough. I, I literally wake up every morning. I can't wait to get back into whatever it is I'm working on. Which is one of the reasons why I started the podcast, because it, it gives me so much joy to talk to interesting and fun people and... You know, if you, can't, if you can't get paid to do it, then find another way to be creative, right? <laughs> That's right. I thought we could talk about your memoir and then segue into your career and your projects as a storyboard artist and the animatics and talk that through because I'm actually not an artist 
And I think for people who don't even draw, but who are interested in film or involved in film are interested in that process. Sure. So well, the nice thing is the story of my memoir led me directly into the career I have now. So it's a beautifully smooth transition. Perfect. Yeah. Because I remember when you said you started working in theater, but I don't want to get ahead of myself because right. I, I tend to leap around and I'm trying, <laughs> I'm sure, as you can tell, I'm like really organized <laughs> as I shake my head. So I just want to add, I, I will be doing a, a separate introduction, but I thought it would be nice to also add that my guest here, Mark Simon, has worked on, on over more than 5,000 productions. First of all, at some point, I'm going to ask you, how is that even humanly possible? But I'm going <laughs> to put a pin in that one. Um, mm-hmm. Has worked on The Walking Dead, Stranger Things, Dynasty, Creep Show, and others. Authored 13 books, that's amazing, mostly for artists and the entertainment industry. This is directly from your intro, and it was so well-written. I'm just stealing it. I hope you don't mind. (laughs) Written hundreds of articles, helped develop the Storyboard Pro software, which I hope you'll talk about, Mm -hmm. and won over 200 awards. Again, I don't know how you have time to accept those awards (laughs) for your productions. And your most recent book is your memoir, Attacked which I finished in two days, I found terrifying and gripping. So anyway, let's start with telling us about your, your memoir. My memoir has to do with when I was bullied in high school. You know, a lot of people can relate to that. Um, and in some of the research, I actually found out that more kids are bullied in junior high. That, that's where it's really bad. But um, in high school, I, uh, I was bullied by this gang. Sorry, I hear a loud noise in the background. Can you hear that? No. Okay. Um, when I was in high school, I was, there was a gang that kind of ran the, ran the school in the background and they, um, they started picking on me because I was really short. I mean, it's not that I'm tall now, but I was really short in high school, especially my uh, sophomore and junior year. And, all uh, the events of my story happened at the beginning of my junior year. So I'm literally celebrating 40 years right now. And I thought about the story so much over the years, but I wasn't a good enough uh, writer of that type of project to do it justice. I mean, I've been writing ever since I started in the industry, but I, I tried writing it a few times and personally I thought it sucked. So I, I, I finally got to the point. I, I just, finished uh this past year i wrote one of the drafts of a netflix film that's coming out this christmas and i thought you know i i can finish it now and do it justice so that said going back because i was so small these guys were picking on me but what they didn't know and most people didn't is i was running my dad's construction company uh i had i was his superintendent i had been for years by that point but i was raised doing construction. We were building these giant uh, custom homes. So every day, if I wasn't at school, I was working in construction and I was telling these really large muscle bound guys what to do every day. You know, starting when I was 14, I was running the cruise. And so I was really strong. I was short, but if you ever saw me with my shirt off, it was just nothing but muscle. Mm -hmm. Um, So when these guys would pick on me, it's like, these are high schoolers. They don't mean anything to me compared to my telling these 40-year-olds that they don't know what they're doing, you know, that weigh 300 pounds. So I had a big mouth. I was a smart mouth. 
And um, the, the guys would try to body check me in, in uh, either in gym class, which, you know, that's where the guys really pick on each other in gym class, but they would bounce off of me and they got embarrassed. And so as I embarrassed them by either smart, uh, smart mouthing back to them or body checking them back, they started building more and more hatred and tried to get more guys together because one on one, they never they, they never tried doing anything else to me other than just trying to pester me. But I always had the upper hand. But I was short. So. That built to one night at the, which is the opening chapter. I actually start the memoir in the main attack. I was in my old 63 T-Bird. Uh, it was a car I had rebuilt. And um, I was, we had a big bonfire in this hidden location that the high school had every Friday and Saturday night. It was, everyone just got getting drunk and getting high and hooking up back there. And so I was back there sitting in my car with a buddy of mine talking to some girls. And all of a sudden in the background, I hear, this voice yell out, Hey, there's Simon. Let's rumble. And before I knew it, about 30 guys jumped on my car on the back, on the hood, up on the top guys are reaching past each other, punching my buddy and I through the windows. And, um, and I yelled over my buddy, roll up the windows. And luckily in that old car, which was really interesting and, and thank goodness, the window switches were not on the doors. They were on the center console. So we were able to lean away from the arms and roll up the windows. And it was electric windows, even though it was such an old car. But I grabbed the arm of Perry, one of the, there there are two ringleaders, Perry and Steve. Um, I grabbed Perry's arm and I rolled up the window on his arm and I held on. I put my car in gear and I took off and I drug him down the road. Now, the problem was anyone who wasn't involved in that initial group attacking me had no idea what was going on. Everyone was just drunk and partying and hanging out. And I'm now flying through this party like a madman running over feet and people are jumping out of the way thinking I'm the bad guy. And I get that. I understand that. But I was scared for my life. You know, these guys had bats and chains and all sorts of stuff. They're beating on my car when I took off. Um, one, of the, one of the friends of the gang, one of the guys in the gang jumped in front of me. His name is David. David jumped in front of the car to try to get me to stop. So I ran over him. I mean, I'm, and he bounced off the window windshield of my car. And when he bounced off the side, he hit Perry, ripped his uh, arm out of the, uh, out of the window and they went rolling off, but I missed the exit of the, of the party area. Cause I was so freaked out. Was it just only one way out? Yeah. Of this, so of this, this kind was of like un- or something like that. Yeah. This was an unfinished subdivision. There okay. was one main entrance. And then we had uh, we always built the bonfire back in a cul-de-sac um, that was hidden by trees. So cops on the road couldn't see that a bunch of us were back there partying. So when I drove out of the cul-de-sac, I missed the one turn for that exit. OK. And um, and that's when I felt like the Frankenstein monster, because when when I spun the car around and I tried to get out, they blocked off the exit with two other cars. Perry's car and some other pickup. And I saw this, uh, everyone silhouetted against this giant bonfire in the background. And all these guys and some gals were coming after me armed. They're Texas. Everyone had weapons. They didn't have guns, luckily. Thank goodness. But, you know, they were pulling tire irons and bats and chains and, and out, of, out of there. And they're pulling burning boards out of the bonfire. So it's, it's like, literally like the villagers with torches and pitchforks marching towards the monster. 
And that's what it felt like to me. Mm-hmm. So I actually ended up jumping my car over a ditch. Uh, that, since I couldn't get to the exit, there were ditches along the roads, but they just cleared it out. And so there was dirt piled on both sides. And I hit my old 63 under that dirt pile, launched me over, and I landed in the middle of the road and we got away. The problem is a bunch of those guys followed me home and attacked my family in our front yard. So uh, the, the opening chapter in the book goes through until the point where I can't get away from them. Uh, and I, then I tell the backstory on, on everything, on who I was and who these guys are. And, and these guys used to uh, catch people. Uh, you know, they used to hunt down people and break their legs. Uh, I found out after the book came out that they used to, because people who were attacked by them came forward and talked to me, mm-hmm. uh, that they used to uh, go downtown Houston and do what they used to call rolling fags. They used to go down and beat up people they thought were gay. Oh, boy. Um, just randomly. They would just drive down the street, stop, and beat someone to a pulp. They used to throw cinder blocks off of bridges at cars down below as they were driving on the freeway. You know, these kind of wonderful people. So, so you know, they attacked my mom and my dad and myself in our front yard at our house. And that, that's when we called the cops for help. But they were underage. They were all 16 or 17. And there's only so much juvie court can do, especially in that situation. So I talked to the school. The school helped me out. Um, The school actually gave, because they were waiting for me after school, and they were slashing my tires. Um, So the school let me park in the teacher's parking lot. So I drove a different car. We had a bunch of cars in the family. So rather than driving my car, I drove one of our work vehicles. And I parked with the teachers and I would just sneak out of school every day. Um, uh, but anyway, so that, so that went on. And then I became completely ostracized mm-hmm. in high school because everyone they didn't was want to get involved. They didn't want to yeah. get targeted. Yeah. So, I mean, so that, that's what built to everything. And then we had to figure out what to do. And the local constable that I had asked for help, um, he was a guy that used to hang out at the local McDonald's. And so all the kids knew him, uh, Officer Ogden. And uh, Ogden came over to our house and, and said, you know, there is a new law that's never been used. Uh, it's untested, but it holds parents responsible for the actions of their kids. But you have to warn them in court first so they have an opportunity to curtail their kids' actions. So that's what we did. And the local judge was also trying to get rid of the kids because they were well-known as being bad kids. And um, within a week or so, we were in court on a Saturday. He opened up the court on a Saturday. And we warned four families, the four that showed up at the house and attacked my family. Two sets of parents dealt with their kids instantly. And I never had another issue with them. The other two, they only had mothers, the ringleader, Stephen Perry. Um laughed in court about it, didn't think it was real, even though it was in a courthouse in front of the judge. And one of the mothers in front of the judge called me a pussy. Oh, God. No self-awareness. No. So, um, but then the judge took me aside and said, look, I will help however I can. You call us whenever you feel it's justified those, uh, the parents of whoever you call us on will be thrown in jail within an hour, but make sure whatever reason you call us will stick in court. Not that they look at you sideways, not that they trip you in the hallways, 
I don't want you to get hurt. But if we're going to take them to court, make it count. So, and all that was on me. My parents um, allowed me to make the final decision. You know, they were frightened. My mom was scared to death. She she wore wigs and um, uh, ref- dressed in a way completely different so she could hide her identity. Uh, we all had guns in the cars. I mean, we got completely armed. We got trained in firearms so that we were safe with it. We hired a private detective to watch the house. Uh, we were getting death threats constantly. Um, notes uh, given to my uh, left for my uh, my parents that I was going to be brought home in a bloody bag in pieces. That my mom was going to get chopped up. Um, you know, fire bombs, uh, fire bomb threats on the house. Those types of things were happening. So. Um, and so the guys attacked me a number of times, a number of times, but I was, I was always able to not be hurt, um, whether for whatever reason, you know, that's why I had to outline so much in the book because there's so much was going on until one day when eight of them found out I was out on a date and eight of them came after me with weapons, you know, again, with bats and chains and tire irons and stuff like that. And, uh, I, I lost my mind. I, 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 uh, had a nervous breakdown. I, I escaped quickly, luckily. And, um, I didn't know where I was. Uh, I just drove around Houston for hours. And I finally pulled over at a friend's house in another area and called, called my parents. I said, that's it. They just attacked me again. Have Stephen and Perry's uh, parents arrested. That's when you were at the, like the, the theater geeks party is at our, your friend, was it Allison? The little blonde, right? Or a little bouncy little blonde. Was no, that, no, that was a different time. That was Missy. Oh. Um, oh. What, what's funny, which I don't, I don't put in the book. Missy's older sister was my first girlfriend in fourth grade. So it, just, it, it was just <laughs> interesting how this, how this, uh, how this all came out. But you no, know, that was why I didn't call the cops on that one. Uh, I don't know why. That one just made me mad. So, I, yeah, we were at a party, and the party had wound down. It was just me and, I guess, four girls, something like that, uh, left at the end. The front door was locked, but it was a double front door, and everyone who had left the party were talking about I was there. So uh, four of the gang came and pushed in the door, broke through the lock, and, um, and jumped me on the couch. Two guys held me down. Um, one held the girls back, and then uh, Steve, the uh, fourth guy, jumped on top and just started trying to pound on me. Um, I just kept throwing them off, um, but it made me mad. And that was the one night they're very lucky I didn't find them. So after, after they left, the mother had come out and yelled and screamed. Um, They left. I called dad. I said, come get me. They just attacked me. I don't want to walk to the car alone. He came in the truck and uh, he brought the weapons and he said, what do you want to do? I said, "Uh, I want to hunt them. So we hunted them down. And if we'd have found them, we'd have killed them. Um, it was, it was to that point. And I'm glad we didn't. Cause I don't, I don't want to have to live with that, yeah. but it's a weird thing to look back and realize that you wanted to kill somebody. And I did. I, it just, there's no two things about it. We had guns with us and if we found them, we were going to kill them. Yeah. There's only just so far anybody can be pushed. Yeah. I just, it, it was insane. Uh, you know, what was going on and they just wouldn't stop. And, and then, you know, I was alone. No one would talk to me. Um, I literally, cause it, I was at the time, uh, Klein Force High in Houston is where I went. It was the largest high school in Texas. 
and it's a big state. It was 4,000 kids went there. Um, still a gigantic school. That's huge. And I would walk down the hallway, you know, with all 4,000 kids there. And it was, they were literally spread out like the parting of the Red Sea around me. No one would look at me. No one would talk to me. Um, and, and they wouldn't even want to jostle me because you're always getting jostled in those hallways. Nothing. Nothing. Uh, now, did they know? Because I thought, I thought that there are some people knew and some people didn't know, know and the people who knew yeah, were ostracizing you so they didn't, they didn't want to become a target themselves. But then a lot of people didn't know and they, I don't quite. Yeah. So, so the ones who didn't know were all of, all of the, um, the honors class people. I didn't hang out with them out, outside of, out of school, but in my honors classes, you know, I could talk to them. But I got really quiet because my life was under threat all the time. So I stopped talking to them. But the kids in the honors classes had nothing to do with anyone who was involved with the gang or in any of the sports guys because they were, they were all the really smart science nerds and, and geeks. Um, so, you know, it's like any, there's cliques anywhere. Uh, but just the general population of the school avoided me like the plague. Um, you know, theater who I became friends with after the court trial, they were literally on another end of the school. So they never even came into the main population except for some of the gen ed classes. Um, and they didn't know about it, but I didn't know them until after the court trial. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And 4,000 people, that's, that's sometimes bigger than a small town yeah. in different parts of this country. So that's a lot of people. Yep. Yep. Wow. And these guys got away with a lot. I mean, they, as I was working with the, uh, the principal and vice principal, they'd even confided in me that uh, Stephen Perry had crawled through the ceiling and broke into the offices, stole and burned their own records. You know what I don't understand is, and, and maybe the laws have changed, is why were they not treated as adults? I mean, they did horrible things to people. You know? Most people wouldn't even take them to court. Um, it, there was a possibility of, of having them, uh, trying them as an adult, but you don't know going into it. And we wanted to be certain that once we started something, it was going to work. Uh, and the school couldn't do that. The school was in the process of doing things, but it's a very long process to go through the different levels in, uh, in a school to get rid of somebody. Uh, which my court trial actually finalized everything and they were able to kick them out of the district. Uh, but they were working on it and they had been for months. Uh, it's just a slow process. Um, so I, I kind of had to do my own thing. Wow. That's frightening. Uh, the thing that sticks in my mind is that I don't know if it was iron or steel that. Oh yeah. That the you... steel slug. Oh, I have it right here. You have it. You have it. Wow. I found it. But when my dad sold, uh, sold the house I was raised in uh, a couple of years ago, I went over there and I found this in our workshop. This is the actual, you see how beautifully it fits in my fist. I know people listening won't see it, but you can. Right. And, and that sharp point would stick out the end that I could clock someone with if I needed, but also makes your fist really solid. I, I never ended up using it, but it fit, made me feel so much better in school to have something I could wrap my hand around in my pocket. Um, it's kind of like a security blanket that would clock somebody. Yeah. Um, cause I couldn't have a knife and I obviously couldn't uh, have a gun in school, but I had to protect myself some way. So dad gave me that. Mm-hmm. Uh, has things changed? Like I know there's a lot of no bullying policy, but with the, you know, with the advent of internet 
and Facebook bullying has morphed uh, and in some ways I think have gotten worse. It's just grown because now there's more ways than just the physical bullying that I suffered, you know, now with online and virtual bullying, uh, it's more mental and ostracizing that people are doing. And I see a lot about that. I'm involved with a number of online bullying groups, try to offer, trying to offer suggestions. Um, uh, but as far as what's what's changed besides that, uh, it, a lot of it's people being afraid to speak out. Um, and yes, schools have a no bullying to- uh, policy. But the problem is, and I'm, this is one of the articles I'm in the process of writing right now, some of their no, uh, non-bullying policies actually protect the bullies. It, uh, they're bullshit policies hmm. that are um, uh, no exception policies. If you're in a fight with somebody, Everybody in, involved in that fight gets suspended. Well, that's nonsense. That just supports the bully because they're, they're going to fight anyway, but that's going to keep the good kids from fighting back. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to protect yourself. So, uh, so that zero tolerance policy needs to go away. It needs to end immediately. It literally hurts kids. It, it doesn't help anyone. It's mm-hmm. simply there to uh, for lazy administrators is honestly what it is. They're lazy administrators because they're not going to bother to figure out who the bad person is. And you know what? They know who the bad kids are. Of course they do. Of course they do. So deal with them. I mean, I think it's absolute bullshit that someone who's simply trying not to get hurt or it's like, I'm tired of your shit and knocking someone on their ass. Why should they get in trouble? I don't think they should. I agree. And it's interesting because your perspective is, of course, male, and a teenage teenage male, which you you tapped in and you talk about how you were able to go back through your diaries that your family kept, yeah, in the asshole file that, that <laughs> yeah, which is the real <laughs> file name my mom my mom created. Yep. See, I, I have to say I identify with your mom. I'm not as slim as she, but I am five one and a half, and so right. and I'm very empathetic. So I I spent two days being really, really afraid for everybody's life. And I kept saying, don't say those things. Don't do that. <laughs> Stop right. that bark. You're going to get hurt. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I identify with that. I, I think I experienced a little bit of bullying, not as not anything like what you had. I think I had some more insidious stuff that happened within my family that has made a pretty long impression. And what's hard about some of that subtler stuff is that you feel kind of crazy because other people don't see it. Or I think of myself being sensitive. And so some things I interpreted may on other people think like, I, what's the big deal about that? And uh, the, there's a big difference between the kind of bullying that girls or young women do to each other. Yeah. It's more insidious because you don't necessarily even know it's happening. Uh, my wife was, was verbally abused by her father, but she didn't know it until after she and I had gotten married and she was actually watching an interview of someone describing it. And she just went white as a, as a sheet. And so I, I, that's me. They're describing me. You realize that her dad had verbally abused her her whole life. And, and that affected how she dealt with a lot of situations um, because it was ingrained in her. She couldn't get away from it. It kind of sounds like uh, the same kind of thing might have happened to you. Um, yet, you know, girls tend to think things through and do mental punishment. Um, guys, it's, it's uh, threats or physical punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's just, just bullying of you're fat, you're ugly, you know, no one wants you. You know, guys will do that kind of thing too. But, um, 
but generally there's a threat of, you know, getting after somebody, you know, do this, give me your money or I'm going to pound you after school, that type of thing. You know, it's, it's an old Hollywood trope, except it really happens. Right. It's really frightening. So I can imagine for your mother that it was frightening on many, many levels, you know, her family, her yeah. child, her husband, herself. Yeah, she broke down all the time. And, and yeah. you know, and I had to ask dad about that uh, after the fact. In fact, for an, an, I interviewed my dad a number of times. In fact, my website has a couple of the interviews with him because um, there were a lot of things he didn't admit for over 20 years. You know, like the fact that he had made plans to have all the kids just disappear, as he says permanently. Um, you know, he knew how he was going to take care of them. He knew where he was going to take the bodies. Uh, he wanted to wait and see if the court trial worked, but if it didn't, uh, he was going to take care of it himself. And he never admitted that he never told my mom because he didn't want any of us to live with that grief, but he was going to protect me one way or the other. And that's frightening again, uh, for a good person to have to think that way. Yeah. It changes you. Yeah. So, yeah, those guys have, unless they've read the book now, which they might, they, I, uh, a lot of their old friends have read it uh, because I've heard through the grapevine. Uh, they had no idea how close they came to dying. That's terrifying. Uh, you know, what's interesting is you, at, at the end, I don't think this will spoil it, but you, you after everything was settled and um, actions were taken, I don't want to spoil the, the book for people. Um, somebody did justice. It's okay. It's people it, want to know it's a happy ending. Okay. okay. It's a happy ending people. Uh, yeah. so the two mothers went to, went to jail. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen Perry's mom, I had them uh, arrested and, and we won the court case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I mean, that, I mean, that's a turning point in your life. Well, it was for more than just me. I mean, that I was the first one in the country to use that law. So, uh, so I set the precedent uh, that you can do that. And what, one of the things that was interesting is as we were getting ready for the court trial, I, had, I knew, I think it was four other families whose kids had been assaulted like I had been. And I went to see them. It, it, back in those days, we used to have, um, uh, there was a school guide and then there was a local area guide. And of course, then we had this whole thing called a phone book. You and I remember, but. Oh, yes. Oh, I, no I forgot. <laughs> So I looked up their names and, and I went to go see each family and they all slammed the door in my face. They wouldn't want to talk to me. And I kept saying, but you're in the same situation as me. I'm dealing with it. I simply want you to support me in court. And they wouldn't. Um, Were they terrified? You think it was, it was just plain old fear. They couldn't, they didn't want to bring any more retribution from It was absolutely fear, which is nonsense because then you're living in it and the bullies win and they're taking over your life. But after I won the court trial, I went back to all of them again and I, and I would not let them close the door in my face. And, and I said, look, I finished. I ended up not needing you. I beat them in court. Here's how I did it. And I gave them all the information. Here's, uh, here's the law. Here's the, the cop I, uh, that helped me. Here's the judge who set the whole thing up. Here's what we did. Here's who we had, you know, you know, and I literally gave them a blueprint on how they could then protect themselves further. And then I went to the local businesses where their patrons had been assaulted or the guys had destroyed displays or, or whatever. And they had broken out windows, all sorts of stuff. And I went to them and I, and I showed them what they could do as well. So, uh, I was not satisfied in only my causing them heartache. I wanted to destroy their lives. 
Yeah. Well, they should be held accountable. And luckily you help them be accountable, not just to you, but to the other people. I keep thinking of that family. I I was just horrified with the story of them throwing those cinder blocks over the bridge and that family that they hurt so badly. That's that's the one thing that I never saw firsthand. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons I I changed the last names in, in the book. Um, the guys used to brag about it, the bullies, they, they used to walk around school bragging that they had done it over the, over the past weekend. And other kids at the school told me the stories of, yeah, they used to go throw the cinder blocks off. Now, as far as the family that I have that was hit in the car, I, that I just made up because I, I had no idea who, who it was. I just know that the guys used to do that kind of nonsense. Um, uh, but yeah, but to brag about throwing cinder blocks off of a bridge onto a freeway, I mean, that's psychopathic. Yeah. I mean, just the extent, uh, I just feel like that should have been the thing that got them put in jail as adults or. Well, they were never caught doing it. So bragging about it's one thing. That's not proof. That's just terrifying what people get away with. Yeah. Um, I still, I know that you were confident that once the trial was over and even though you had that one incident afterwards that got that bully to back down, I think maybe because I'm female, obviously I'm a completely different person than you, but I think I'd still be looking over my shoulder. I think I was, I mean, I would be frightened for a very, very long time. I don't think I would ever feel like it was over. Didn't stop them before. Why would it stop them now? Well, I had something over them that no one else had been able to hold over, you know, not only them, but their family, you know, sitting in jail. So, but, but I did. I mean, look, I got my life back pretty quickly. First of all, you know, I had a full-time job working in construction and uh, then I got involved in theater immediately after and, and I found my peeps, you know, it was, mm-hmm. they were just great and I could really be myself and gregarious and, and we were having a great time. But when I was out for years, I was looking over my shoulder and I would get these cold sweats that someone's going to come up and try to stab me from behind. Um, and that went on until I wrote the first draft of this story. Uh, and the day I wrote the end, even though no one will ever see that draft, because it was a terrible, terrible, I guess it was as a script. It was horrible. But the day I wrote the end is the last day that I felt anyone was sneaking up behind me. I literally just flushed it all out of my system by writing it down. My mind no longer had to hold on to those details. It was on paper. and it was. The catharsis from that is hard to explain, but I can tell everybody listening, it absolutely works. It's not just your mind. I've studied trauma and I, it, it gets stuck in your circuitry and your cells. It's not mm-hmm. just emotions and thoughts swirling in your head. So it's kind of remarkable that through the process of writing, you were able to work through that so thoroughly. Yeah, it was it was amazing. You know, it's it's funny look looking back on 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 all of that when I was going back through everything, and I, I went through uh, my old high school yearbook, and at the end of that school year, which is only like four months after the court trial, I found this photo of me in uh, in the school um, uh, talent show, which I had forgotten that. It was the same year. I'm in the talent show in front of the whole school wearing a pink tutu, (laughs) dancing a ballet with two other dudes to Ravel's Bolero, Mm -hmm. acting like an idiot. It was a a comedy segue piece that I wrote that that we did that was just 
funny as hell. And but I'm looking at this photo that they put of me in the yearbook prancing around like that, thinking, how in the hell did I get the uh, the guts to prance around like that four months after my life had been ruined? And now I'm doing this in front of the whole school on stage. I, I felt that comfortable with the theater people. They made me feel that good. Mm-hmm. And I think it also goes to kind of the amazing support and relationship that you had with your parents. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. Because even though you were, you went through this really trying time, you had this amazing kind of foundation to use a construction term. Yeah. Look, I, obviously I couldn't have gotten, gotten through all that without them. Uh, it was a tough thing on all of us. Um, but, you know, over the years, it's just now become a good story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're not suffering from it uh, at all. There's no uh, lingering effects whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, they were incredibly supportive. Uh, they're very strong when they needed to be and uh, didn't force me into anything. So, you know, all the final decisions were mine, which, you know, for a 16-year-old, that might seem like a lot, but I was not a normal 16-year-old. Um, you know, you have to look at each individual on, on how to support them on things. You know, I was running crews when I was 14. I started my first business when I was 12. So, you know, by the time I was 16, I was really seasoned in a lot of things that most people until, you know, earliest in their 20s ever get an opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. So, but they knew that. Uh, They had seen how I was, uh, how I was running that part of their business. Um, So they trusted that I could handle and deal with whatever it was. So, you know, all the final calls were mine. Um, you know, the school offered to move me to another school, which a lot of schools do. A friend of mine had her daughter move schools because she was being bullied. And I looked at the principal. I said, then they win. Why should I uproot my life? I'm going to fight them. They need to leave the school. You know, that's bullshit that I have to uproot because they're being bad. Yeah. Uh, and my parents supported me of that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, no one tried to push me out. And the principal loved it. He said, well, we want kids like you here. Uh, I said, but I just can't get rid of them yet. It's going to take time. I said, well, do what you need to. You know, I'm going to do what I need to. Yeah. Wow. Moving to the end, I remember you saying in your book that you were having trouble concentrating in your math class. And so you yeah. took an extra art class, but that art class somehow connects to your starting to work in the theater department. And that was also another big turning point for your life, which has led to where you, I am now. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I was in all the honors classes. Uh, I was at at the top of of my grade, not the very top. There were some freaking brilliant people I was in school with, but you know, I was in the top, you know, three or 4% of the school. And, uh, but I couldn't concentrate because my life was under threat. So I failed math and I was a mathlete. I literally competed. I was one of the, uh, the mathletes in the school, but I failed advanced math and that gave me an extra class. I was always an artist. I always knew I was going to be an artist. Uh, so I, I took an extra art class at the end of the day and uh, my art teacher said, look, the theater department just asked if we had anyone who could do their posters for Fiddler on the Roof, the new play musical they were doing you should do it. Everything we give you to do, you complete. Cause a lot of artists, you know, it, it's, it's a shame to, to group a whole group, but it happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Don't follow through. I always followed through. She said, why don't you go down, just take your class down there and your art things will be whatever they need. 
So I went down to theater and I would sit on the edge of the stage as they were building the sets. And I was using that for inspiration to design the program, the posters and things. But as they're building the sets, I kept making comments because I built homes. (laughs) You know, it'd be better if you did this, it's faster if you did that, it'd be stronger if you did this. And slowly I ended up moving from off the stage to on the stage to behind the stage. And by the end of Fiddler, I was the backstage manager running the crews. And, you know, I finished building all the sets and, um, and I just fell in love with all the people. I, it was just absolutely incredible. And that summer I ended up going to SFA in Texas, Stephen F. Austin for a summer theater uh, camp. Mm-hmm. And they gave me a scholarship to come back and uh, study theater. I accepted it. So I ended up going to SFA and rooming with my best friend. And um, in I never took any theater classes. I went straight to film, but I accepted the mm. theater money. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, you know, I got involved with film because of all that. And as soon as I graduated, I thought, well, Hollywood sounds cool. And I just moved. I'd never been there. I didn't know anyone. Uh, I, I, I owned a house. I bought a house when I was 19. I sold my house and uh, closed down my business. I was uh, publishing a magazine and, and running an advertising agency at the time. Um, I shot so all busy. That- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just moved to LA. Wow. So in when you were studying film, was there some sort of concentration in, in the film department that you were? Kind of. Animation. Um, but no one taught animation there. But they had a lot of equipment. So... Uh, I had always been a, a voracious reader. So, uh, for instance, the first uh, 3D effect in 2D animation was in Pinocchio uh, that Disney produced years ago. And they uh, they had this, this stand that the camera was mounted up above and it would come down and it would shoot through various layers of glass that the different cells would be on. So as it's moving down you get this feeling of moving through space rather than every, uh, all the artwork you know, flat together. And I thought that was really cool. And we had a camera stand at the college. So I designed and built my own, um, uh, my own 3D stand on top of it mm-hmm. and started doing my own, you know, three-dimensional, supposedly, uh, animation. Uh, so, you know, I had a lot of opportunity. Now, I studied live action there because that's where the uh, professors were. So I, I ended up having a lot. I had everything I needed to play with my own 2D animation and everything I needed to also light and shoot and edit uh, uh, live action footage as well. So you came out of school having probably produced some shorts or some projects or, Mm -hmm. and knowing you, you probably did everything (laughs) you wrote, you produced, you probably acted, you did it in the voiceover. I did everything else. (laughs) I do voiceovers. I do a lot of voice. That's acting. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's the kind of acting. <laughs> and so, when you went to Hollywood, was your first uh, was your first thing working for Roger Corman? Is that right? That or... was the first job I got, not the first one I went for. Uh, oh, okay. The first one I went for was um, working on He Man: Masters of the Universe at Filmation up in the Valley, and uh, I did an animation test, and very quickly found out that being self taught is not always a good thing. Oh. <laughs> because I wrote up the dope sheet, which is basically it's an, uh, the outline of what drawing goes where and how it tracks on the backgrounds. And I knew how dope sheets worked, but I had my own nomenclature on it, which did not translate the way Hollywood does it. So 
it was all screwed up on the test. Uh, the drawings were fine, but the, but the way my dope sheet was, was the Mark Simon way, not the right way. So I failed miserably on that test. Uh, so then I started looking in, in the industry rags. There's one called Backstage, which I think is still being published. And yeah. In the back of Backstage every week, there was lists of, of low-budget productions that were looking for crew. And there was one, it was a science fiction movie uh, down at Roger Corman's studio called uh, Beyond Infinity. They needed a construction coordinator. And I always kind of figured that'd be my way in as an art director. It would be through construction and design because that's what I had done most of my life. So uh, I went down there, got the job on my first interview as construction coordinator. And two weeks later, I became the art director of the movie and uh, just kind of continued on from there. So, yes, yeah, so I was running the cruise on my first movie at, uh, you know, for one of the most prolific producers in Hollywood. That's amazing. Did you actually interview with him? No, I didn't. I, I interviewed with the producers. Uh, he wasn't the hands-on on that one. Uh, I interviewed with uh, Devorah Hardberger, the producer and the director, whose name I can't remember. He was kind of a crazy dude. Um, oh, and Mark Wolf was the special effects uh, producer. I sat and met with them, and they hired me on the spot, uh, mostly probably because I was willing to work for an ungodly low amount of money. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, it gave me my credits, and I started making a lot more money very quickly. Mm -hmm. Your version of being a PA right? As an entry point, not obviously a PA, but right. that whole, like, I'll do it for almost nothing because I want to be here type of thing. Got to get the credits. Yeah. You know, how do you yeah. break in? Struggle, you know, get in there, do whatever it takes. You've got to prove yourself before anyone's going to make better offers to you. And, and that's what happened. I kept, every time I met people, they would bring me on to another project and, and I would uh, double or more my income literally project to project. Wow. Well, it is a relationship business, right? Did your experience with getting on that first gig have something to do with that book you wrote about starting at the top? <laughs> well, I don't think I had things, the title right, but yeah, yeah. Start at the top. Yeah. So start at the top is, is a, um, a business book, an inspirational business book on how to leapfrog your career. And over and over and over in my life, I have one way or another started at the top of whatever it is I was doing. And, and not necessarily that I would get to the top position, but there's all there's start at the top can mean two things. It means running something immediately where you're, you know, you're literally starting at the top of whatever that group business, whatever it is. And the other is if you want something, go to the person who makes the decision. You start at the top person because mm -hmm. I don't want to talk to five people who can tell me no. I only want to talk to the person who can tell me yes. So I try to skip anyone possible. Like I never talked to anyone in HR anywhere. HR is bullshit. They can only tell you no. They're yeah. never the ones who make a decision, uh, at least in, in the areas that I work in. You know, if you're in accounting or, or, or sitting at the front desk or answering phones, yeah, HR are the only people you're ever going to talk to. Mm -hmm. But in management positions, creative positions, no one gives a shit what HR thinks. Uh, so, um, so, you know, from, and, and it's not just the entertainment industry that I pulled stories from. You know, my, as I said, my first business was designing skateboards. I had my own line of skateboards because I was a competitor when I was 12. I ended up, my first deal was selling them to Schwinn. So Schwinn was distributing wow. my skateboards. Huh. Uh, when, when my dad was working for Remax as a realtor after he left Shell Oil, uh, I saw his training 
package that he would use to bring other people in and to get clients. And I thought it was, it was poorly done. Uh, so I said, let's computerize this. So I set up, and this is before PowerPoint existed, mm-hmm. but I kind of did something kind of like a PowerPoint uh, with an uh, earlier software. And I, I just set up where it was smoother and, and better and, and whatever. And I ended up selling it to the, uh, to Gary Keller, the president and owner of Keller Williams that they ended up using uh, nationwide, you know, and that was my first training program. So, you know, stories like that and how I did it, how I landed my first book deal, you know, and how I saved my second book deal. Mm-hmm. You know, those are all stories on, you know, I've, I learned from failure, hopefully, and, and then moved on. But I, I've got a whole section on there on how I screwed up you know, on, on different things. You don't always work when you reach for the stars, but unless you reach, you won't get there. Yeah. That was literally on the podium of my English teachers uh, <laughs> English, you know, in class. That's amazing. I wish I had known you or read your book when I was 20 because I didn't know what the hell to do after I got my English degree. I was like, I decided I wasn't going to be a professional actress, very dramatic, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So, My wife is an English major too. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. done very well though, right? She worked at yes, HBO at one point. Is she still there? Uh, she's, she, uh, she's mostly retired now, but she was, uh, uh, one of the top producers at Nickelodeon for a number of years and produced for, for TNN and for Disney and, uh, then, uh, end up, uh, running found co-founding and running a sell your TV concept. Now the consultancy. That's fantastic. When did you start to get the opportunity to do storyboarding? All right. So one of the things that I had noticed as I was art directing movie after movie after movie was I was doing design and, and building, but I wasn't drawing as much, and, and I missed drawing. And obviously on movies, I was seeing the storyboards that someone else was drawing come across my desk. And um, at the time, I was working at HBO, uh, where I met my wife at HBO, working on an old old show called First and Ten with O.J. Simpson and Shannon Tweed. Um, I, I thought, you know, I should probably start making a transition to storyboarding. I wanted to draw more. And, but I'd never done it. I wasn't trained in it. Um, the storyboarding courses and training didn't exist back then. There weren't any books. There was one pamphlet back then. This is back in the eighties. Uh, but that was it. That's one of the reasons I, I wrote all my books on storyboarding. Um, but so I, I went to storyboards Inc, which at the time was the largest storyboard agency in the world. They're based there in, in Venice in LA. And, uh, and I walked in with a portfolio that I thought was great. And instantly they told me everything was wrong. <laughs> Literally every single thing I presented was wrong. I wrong, said, okay. Wrong how did they tell you how at least? Oh yeah. Yeah. I asked them specifics and, and I had the format wrong, scaling wrong, presentation was wrong. It, it was wrong, wrong, wrong. So they said, and I said, well, show me some samples of what's right. So they did. Uh, the agent I was talking to handed me a bunch of things we want to see things like this, this, and this, you know, look, if you ever come up with new samples, come back. So a week later I was back and <laughs> I had all new samples and he goes, Oh, well, it's better. Still not quite right. Here's this problem, this problem, this problem. Come on back anytime. A week later I was back. And literally every week I kept showing up at his desk until he either got tired of seeing me or I got it. And they placed me on a Volkswagen commercial. Um, and so I took that experience and, I was still working at HBO at the time. So I went to our executive producer and I said, look, you're paying for me anyway. I'm here, but I'd rather be doing your storyboards. If you need boards on anything, let me do them for you. 
And he said, all right. They said, I don't have any plans, but I'll let you know. And two weeks later, he calls me at my office and said, come up, uh, come up to the 30th floor and meet with me. So I went up and he handed me a script. He goes, this, because it was a comedy, it was a TNA comedy on HBO. He said, this is supposed to be scary and funny. It's funny, but it's not scary. Can you make this scary? I went, yeah, sure. No idea. I just, if you want to succeed, just say yes. Figure it out. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I can. And um, he said, so how much will you charge me? And I gave him a rate. And, and he said, tell you what, you've not done this before. All right. Granted. So I'll give you half that. So I was going to get paid on top of what he was paying me anyway. He said, I'll give you half that. But if we end up using it, I'll give you double what you asked for. Wow. That's incentive. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, he also told me I didn't ask for enough in the first place. Oh. So, uh, so uh, I, I was engaged to Jeannie at that time. So I, I, I came back and I said, all right, we're going to be up all night. We got to watch a lot of horror movies and figure out what the tropes <laughs> are that make something scary. And I storyboarded out uh, portions of the script and rewrote a bunch of it and added in scary elements. And I went and met with him and he said, like this, don't like this. And I went back and did revisions, of course, like you always do a couple of times. And um, they ended up using him. So he was good to his word, gave me twice what I had asked for. And, and uh, you know, I had a TV series under, for HBO under my belt. That is amazing and so inspiring because you never took no. And you, that's your, kind of like the way you, you are in life, though. Yeah. Like you had, and you started so young, you had an enormous amount of responsibility. You talked to difficult people. You were bullied. You had all this stuff kind of under your belt. So I can't even imagine that trying to do these new things, like somebody saying, no, this doesn't work, wouldn't even phase you. Like I, you seem like you'd be almost completely unfazable at this point of your life. Like if you wanted to learn to be a, a, a swimming dancer, you probably just go do it. <laughs> and then well, you write yeah. about a book and then in a course. <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the stories about when, uh, when computer graphics first started coming in and, and this is back in the early days, I was still at Nickelodeon at the time. So I guess it's early nineties. It's something that I wanted to know. I didn't want to do it professionally, but I wanted to understand it and do it. And I was office at Universal at the time in Orlando. And I had heard that a guy had just moved in, invested in this big computer graphics setup, which at that time, they were big machines. You know, it's not like laptops or desktops now. And so I, I just, after work one day, I walked over to his office and introduced myself, said, I heard that you have a new CG setup. He goes, oh, yeah. And he was so proud. He said, let me show it to you. So we walk in the other room and he shows me the whole setup. And I was like, I guess like this is incredible. You know, so where's your crew? He goes, well, I don't have one yet. I said, well, who knows how to use this stuff? He goes, well, I'm starting to learn a little bit, but I had, I need to find people. I said, you ever have downtime where, it, where it's not accessible at night? He goes, yeah. I said, will you give me access to it? I'll learn it. And he gave me a key to his office. And so wow. I would work all day at Nickelodeon. And I would go and I'd spend all night teaching myself because there were no courses. I taught myself reading manuals on how to do CG. And because I was there, he was pitching shows. He ended up selling a show to NBC called Firefighters. It was just like cops, but it was following firefighters. And uh, I ended up doing CG on firefighters because I was the one who knew his equipment and I was there. So that was my first 
animation, the first CG job was on an NBC series. Again, kind of starting at the top because I put myself in that position. Mm-hmm. That's just incredible. Yeah. Like I said, I could have learned a lot from you if I'd known <laughs> you 20 years ago. <laughs> it's never too late. Well, that's why I'm doing this. I'm starting at the top. I took a course and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to learn as I go. Learn to ask that's questions great. better. Learn to talk to people. I, I've always been curious. My dad used to drive me away from like the carpenter. He says, honey, we hired him to do a job. You need to stop asking him questions. So I've always asked lots of questions <laughs> of people. <laughs> Perfect for you now, then. Yeah, it is. It's, it is perfect. So that CG job, did that morph into your career as doing storyboarding? And then where did the animatics or the storyboard pro come in, in terms of your career? So when I was working at Nickelodeon, the, the whole CG thing was just so I could understand it. Because, you know, I've now produced a whole lot of things. So I, under, so I can talk to CG animators. I understand the process, know how it works. I'm not as good as any of the guys that I work with, but I don't have to be. I just have to understand so I can speak their language. So that, that was the purpose of doing that. I just got lucky also getting a great credit with it. When I was at Nickelodeon, when, well, I'll back up just for a moment. When I left Los Angeles uh, with my wife, we decided to move to Orlando because the earthquakes uh, were freaking her out. I knew that the easiest way for me to consistently get work in Orlando was uh, art directing because I had a lot of credits in that. And Nickelodeon was just opening up. So we, uh, she and I both went to Nick and we both got hired immediately. Uh, so I was the second art director, second designer at Nickelodeon. And, uh, she started as a production manager and became one of the top producers. And that was great. So we were there for a number of years and then Spielberg moved into Orlando with Sequest, an old Roy Scheider futuristic submarine TV series, sci-fi Spielberg, biggest show on TV at the time, biggest budget. And, uh, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to leave Nickelodeon. I'm going to work for Spielberg. That's my goal. And 15 minutes later, I had the job. What? Yep. Took me 15 minutes to get, to get my dream job. And when I did, I was hired a storyboard artist on the show, which is what I wanted. And, uh, and when I had that, I, I thought, well, this is it. I stopped art directing at that moment. I've never gone back and art directed again. I've been storyboarding full time ever since then. So you have to tell us how you got that okay. job. <laughs> Sorry, I just can't let that go. That's all right. It, it's actually a story I love. I, I, I tell this to college kids all the time because uh, I'm always prepared. I always have my portfolio with me. Now, these days, it's easy. My portfolio is my website, right? Uh, everything's on there. But there was no such thing as internet back then. It didn't exist. Uh, not at all like it is now. So I had my printed portfolio of samples with me. And in my portfolio were were set designs because I was still art directing and, uh, and storyboard samples of the different projects I'd done over the years. I just wasn't doing it full time yet. And when, uh, when Spielberg came in, they were officed at universal, this, the same lot I was already on, but they were in a different building. They were in a building that we now call 22 a was the office building in the middle. Nickelodeon had its own office building where I had my offices. And, uh, so I was thinking, all right, they had just moved in. Most of the crew was there. I didn't know anyone on the crew. I thought, who do I know who's over in building 22A? So I was trying to think, who's that friend of mine? We all have this friend, you do too, who's a busybody, <laughs> who talks to everybody, right? Talks way too fucking much. Well, that's Patty in my case. Um, 
and she had an office. She was, uh, I don't remember what she was doing there, but she, she had an office there in building 22A. So I called her up. Hey, little short, a uh, little small talk. I said, Hey, I want to get on Sequest. Who have you met? I don't care who it is. I know you talk to everybody, Patty. Who have you talked to that's on that crew? She goes, oh, I ended up having lunch yesterday with the construction coordinator, Mike. I thought, oh, my entree. I can speak his language. I'm going to be there in a couple minutes, Patty. I want you to introduce me. And I hung up before she could say no. So I grabbed my portfolio. And because I was a crew head, I didn't have to check out with anyone at Nickelodeon. I just walked out. All right. I just left. And, um, and I went over with my portfolio to Patty's office. I walked in and I said, all right, let's go find Mike. You got to introduce me. She's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And she got up and did it. Right. So we get up, we walk downstairs. She was on the second floor. We walk downstairs and we start walking between uh, the the, uh, sound stages. Uh, Sequest was in three of the big sound stages there. And sure enough, as we're walking out there, Mike comes walking out of one of the sound stages. Hmm. And uh, they, they call out to each other. So we go over and, and she introduces me. She goes, Mike, this is a good friend of mine, Mark Simon, a designer and artist here in town. Uh, wanted to meet you. At which point I now forget Patty exists. I'm focused <laughs> on Mike. And she's like, what am I, top liver? <laughs> I honestly don't know what happened to Patty at that point. I, I literally never even looked at her again after that because she served her purpose. Right? <laughs> wow. So, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, in that meeting. Right, right. Um, <laughs> Heartless man. No, go ahead. <laughs> hey, I had a goal. I was <laughs> yes, going for you're it. You're single-minded. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, so so I, I said, Mike, dude, you know, I love it. The sets look incredible. You, you got a compliment, right? Dude, these sets are incredible. I'd love to get in there and, and check it out more. He said, yeah, sure. I'd love to show you. Everyone loves to show off, right? So we're walking through the sets. And I'm uh, telling him, yeah, I'm one of the designers over here at Nickelodeon. Dude, these things are amazing. I'd love to get on the crew. He goes, what do you do? I said, I do set design and uh, storyboarding. I didn't say art direction because I knew that they had brought their art director with them. So I wanted to give myself a shot. You know, biggest show on TV, just get me in. And he goes, uh, yeah, we're still hiring. So um, you probably want to talk to a production designer. I went, great. Who's that? He said, that's Vaughn Edwards. And I said, is he around? He said, yeah, he's probably up in his office. I said, great. Would you introduce me? Person I've never met before. (laughs) And he goes, "Uh, yeah, sure. So he walks me up the stairs. Vaughn's sitting in his office working on his drafting table. Mike introduces me. Say, I just met this great local artist. Want to talk to you about getting on the show, which point now I'm no longer focusing on Mike. (laughs) I'm talking to Vaughn. Vaughn, dude. I told him what I do. He said, well, let me see your stuff. My portfolio is right there. I opened it up. He looks at it. He goes, yeah, it all looks great. He said, I'm still hiring designers. And I know know they're looking for a story artist, but I don't make the final decision. I said, who does? He said, that'd be Oscar Costo, our supervising producer. I said, is he around? He said, I guess, probably. I said, would you introduce me? He said, sure. He gets up, walks me down to the other end of the hallway. Oscar's in this giant office. He knocks on the door, walks in, says, Oscar, this is Mark. He's a great local designer. He does set design and storyboarding. I look through his stuff. Both look great to me. Take a look. Oscar waves me in. I go in, I lay out my portfolio, and this is literally how long he looked at it. He opened it up, flip, 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 
flip, close it, put it to the side. And I'm thinking, yeah, I don't like this. <laughs> this is not a good way for the meeting to go. And then he goes, and, and then he goes, look, I've met a lot of people here who can do what you can do in set design. And I'm thinking, yeah, I definitely don't like the way this is going. <laughs> he said, but you're the only one I've met who understands storyboarding. You're our new storyboard artist. That was it. Wow. He hired me right there. So the moment I decided to, to get on the show, I called Patty. 15 minutes later, I was hired. That's amazing. That all came from that earlier story where you went to that guy and said, what do you think? And he said, no, try this, try this. He went back. I mean, and then so I learned. You learned. You learned how to do it. So it's just connecting well, what you already I, know how to do. with Yeah, but I yes. listened. See, that's a big thing. See, I have a lot of story. Look, you know, I own one of the biggest storyboard companies around. So I have people come to, to me all the time. And when I have time, I'll review or I'll tell someone what I think of their stuff. Most never come back to me. And I've had a couple of people who have come back with better samples and I've hired them because they've come back and they learned. Mm-hmm. Most people give up. Oh, I'm not good enough. And they give up. It's like, well, that's weak. Learn. Not everyone starts great. I, you know, I went back and back and back and back and back before I had my stuff ready, mm-hmm. but I listened every time I worked at it and then went back again. If you're not willing, if you're going to give up on the first one, you're not going to succeed very well in anything. Mm-hmm. Everyone fails at time, but what do you do with it? What do you learn? Do you get back up? Do you learn? Do you not make those same mistakes and get better? Do you think also though, like from a female perspective, I don't want to overstep because I do get rather enthusiastic and then I overstep, <laughs> then I go too far. So I do don't you think know what overstepping a- is. How can you overstep if you're enthusiastic <laughs> and you go for it? That's great. If someone doesn't like it, that's their issue. Mm, okay. All right. I always, I always feel like, uh, don't take advantage. You know, I have a little bit of that thing in my head. Like, don't take advantage of people. Uh, that's, that's, you're not taking advantage of people. That, that is not something you. that women... Un- I asked you on the show. <laughs> oh, which I love. Um, <laughs> that's, that's unfortunately something women are trained uh, that men aren't. That, that's part mm. of the inherent training that everyone from parents on train women to deal with situations different than men. You know, you're told that you're bossy where I'm going to be told that I'm aggressive. One is good and one is bad. Inherently, you know that bossy, no one wants to be bossy. Oh, but he's aggressive. He's really going to go for it. That's good. Mm -hmm. No, you're aggressive and I'm aggressive. (laughs) You know, we need to, we need to speak to women and little girls the same way we talk to boys and men and stop using these double standards because women are as capable as anyone else if they're given the opportunity. And if they know how to take it. I think sometimes I, I had opportunities and I did not know what to do with it. Maybe there's just nothing that caught your attention. So not, not every place is, is a good fit for people. So, you know, it might mm-hmm. not be any fault involved on, on either side on that one. You That's know, true. when my wife was uh, at Nickelodeon, when she was a production manager there, um, she was working on the show Clarissa Explains It All. And, um, and she told me, she goes, I think I want to produce the next season. I said, all right, what are you going to do? So she, you know, she just decided, well, I'm going to go talk to the creator. She went and, and talked to Mitchell Kriegman, the creator of the show and told him, I want to produce next season for you. Here's why. Here's what I've been doing for you. And this is, this is what I'll bring to it. And he said, 
All right, let me think about it. And a week or two later, called her up. So, okay. Hired her as a producer because she told him that's what she wanted to do. If mm-hmm. you want to do something, let people know. They can't, people don't have the opportunity to help you unless you let them know what help you want. Mm-hmm. And what was she doing before she decided? Like, she obviously knew what a producer did. She had yeah, because she was it. production manager, which is one step under okay. under producer. Okay, so she was closely. She was observing. She was even maybe yep. doing some of those tasks when the producer couldn't them. do them or delegated to her or whatever. So it's yeah. like the next obvious step, and she just had to say, "Okay, this is what I want to do now." And she knew she had to pitch herself. So it's not you owe me. Well, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. No, this is how I can help you. Yeah. If you can answer this, is how I can help you, you've got a good chance of getting it. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that young, some young people now I am older, so I am, and I don't have kids. So I'm less in contact with how they're thinking about things, but in terms of like understanding that they need to understand how to bring a solution or how to showcase what they can do at whatever level mm-hmm. that they are and talk to people about that, as opposed to saying, well, nobody's going to take me seriously because fill in the blank. You know, I don't know if people are like that anymore. Some are, some aren't. Yeah. yeah. Look, and a lot of it has yeah. to do with the way they're raised or the way that they're taught. Um, mm-hmm. you know, my kids were raised hearing all of my stories. So they think I'm a bore. Um, You're but their I'm, dad, you know. <laughs> yeah, every parent is this way to their kids. Uh, but I'm noticing they're starting to do some of those things. You know, one of my kids uh, started working in, in professional tennis management. And, you know, as he tells me his stories, I'm hearing him doing all the right things. You know, he's meeting these people. He's the only one following up, uh, following up with people. And he's going in on off hours to, to trail somebody and meet other people. And it's like, oh, my God, he's literally doing everything right. And so he just has job offers waiting for him because of it. He listened to you, even though he may have pretended not to be listening to you. And certainly, <laughs> <laughs> he was a teenager, right? Right. right? But that, right. that must feel good that you're like your dad instilled a lot of confidence in you, not just by what they said, but their, by their actions and by mm. including you in his business. I mean, that's, you didn't even know maybe that you had such self-confidence, but if you talk to another kid, you'd say like, they're, they're nowhere like I am in terms of my confidence or. It became pretty clear pretty early um, because, you know, I would try to hire some of my friends who were artists when I was still in high school and, and uh, they just failed miserably. Um, so, you know, I would see things like that. And then as I, you know, as I kept, I was always owning businesses. Um, and so hiring people, I would see how some people would rise to an occasion. Other ones wouldn't. Um, and then, you know, as you get to know people, you see how their families would either support them or screw them up. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, there's, it, it goes every which way and there's any number of reasons. Yeah. Uh, some, some people rise above the fray. Other people are, you know, are punished by it. Mm-hmm. I think some of it has to do with school too, because I, I had this funny thing happen when one of my first jobs, uh, I was a receptionist in a law office and they would ask me to do things. And there was a part of me that was like, that isn't real. And then they would ask me if I'd done it yet. And I was like, no. I didn't really believe that they were asking me to do real things or something. I mean, <laughs> as I verbalize that, it doesn't really make sense. But I think there's something about school that doesn't feel real. It's not real life. It's for a grade. It's funny you say that because I just two days ago had this conversation with uh, one of my boys. I have identical twin sons uh, who are in college right now. 
And uh, I was talking to Luke, my, my son, who's in uh, tennis management. And, uh, and I was saying, look, you still have a few general business courses. He's a business major. And uh, I, he said, he said, the biggest issue is sometimes he, he's bored with the things he's asked to do. I said, okay, give here's a challenge to give yourself. And I, I did this for myself. So I know firsthand how it worked. Every assignment you're given, turn it into tennis. If you need to write a paper about marketing something, write a, about marketing a tennis club or a tennis conference or a tennis uh, competition or something. Make it about that. And then do your re- research with people you know or people you want to know because that will only help you in every aspect of your career and you'll be more interested because you love everything about tennis. So just look at school. Everything, I don't care if it's in math, figure out a way to make it about tennis and it changes your outlook, it changes your energy. You learn more and make more connections. You know, when I was in my English class in college, we had to write a paper about um, uh, or interview someone in our field or field that we wanted to study. And at that time, all I wanted to do was animation. And I still work in animation, but I, I do both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was in Nacogdoches, Texas. 12,000 people live there. There's no animation studios in Nacogdoches, Texas. I didn't know anyone who worked in animation. Never did. But Dallas, about four, four and a half hours away, had an animation studio because there was this thing used to be called the Yellow Pages, which you're familiar with, (laughs) right? Yes. I went to the library, pulled out the Yellow Pages because there was no internet. Looked up, found an animation studio. I called and asked to speak to the owner. Started at the top. Mm. And, um, And said... I, I said, I'm writing a paper and I would love to interview you for my paper about what it is that you do your, at your studio. I said, are you available next Friday? And I uh, said, yeah, I've got some time in the afternoon. So I drove to Dallas the night before th- Thursday night after classes. I skipped Friday and went over to the studio, interviewed him in his office and uh, went great. I was freaking loving it. He had actually done some things I had heard of. And, uh, and he said, would you like to see the studio? Would I? Yeah. You know, let your energy come out. Right. Right. So he's showing me around and, and we walk down the hallway and we get to this big, uh, big workroom. And down at the end is this construction, uh, this thing that was built. And I went, wow, what a great rotoscoping machine. He looked at me, he goes, how do you know what that is? I said, well, what else would it be? You've got, uh, <laughs> you've got your flat board with translucent glass on top of the peg bar. So your animation Art's going to go there. You've got a projector underneath. So obviously you're projecting fr- uh, frame by frame underneath and lights on top so you can draw. So it has to be a rotoscope. And he goes, it's the only one of its kind in existence. I had it custom designed and built. You took one glance and knew what it was? Well, it, well, it makes sense. It's how I would do it. And he offered me a job right there. He offered to pull me out of school and give me and gave, uh, offer me a job at his animation studio. So it's things like that. Put yourself in position Things are going to happen. If you sit in your house, of course, everyone is sitting in our houses right now <laughs> during the pandemic. But if you just sit around and bitch and moan, nothing's going to happen. I'm always putting myself out there. Does it always work? No. Most of the time, nothing happens. But I do it enough where these things happen all the time. Mm-hmm. It worked. And I, th- I can imagine it become kind of addictive. You know, like, oh, yeah. see if this happens. Well, here's what I tell my kids. The worst thing that can happen is I'm in the same position I am right now. The best thing that can happen is something else. So if he doesn't offer me a job, I didn't have it before. But if he offers me a job, all of a sudden I've got a a job. So 
There's, and what happened? He offered you a job and you were like, I got to go finish my degree or I'm yeah, not ready for yeah, that. I turned, I, I turned it down because I wanted my degree. Because um, I knew if I left, I'd never go back. Uh, so, and then I ended up moving to LA. I, I knew I could always call him and go get a job there, but LA sounded bigger than Dallas. Mm-hmm. But, it, but again, the confidence that it gave me. It's like, I, I knew, and I, I, I'd known this a lot, but that just confirmed when you're enthusiastic and you show your enthusiasm, that mm-hmm. means the world to somebody when you're interviewing with them. Because if you're blasé, so if you don't care, why should they? Mm-hmm. But if you're excited about it, they will be too. Mm-hmm. I hope people are going to benefit from this because I'm getting so much energy and excitement from talking to you about this. So I want to go back to your history. Yep. Got that great storyboarding Oh, with job. Spielberg, right. With Spielberg. and. Were you there till the end of the series? I did that full season. I did the second season, um, which was, I guess, nine or 10 month gig, uh, which was long. Most gigs I worked on weren't anywhere near that long. And that was great. And so I incorporated while I was working, uh, working on that. And then as we were winding down, I picked up storyboarding on a movie called The Walking Dead. It is not the same as The Walking Dead TV series. It was a completely different Walking Dead but I still worked with Greg Nicotero, who is one of the executive producers of The New Walking Dead. He and I both, that's where we first met, was working on uh, this, uh, this Vietnam uh, war movie uh, back then. And uh, I just, I had the credit. So I just kept doing a lot of commercial work. And in fact, you were asking how in the world I got to so many credits. Uh, between TV series and commercials, you know, I'll often do my average is generally between three and 12 projects a week. I've been doing this over 30 years. Wow. It adds up. How do you work that fast? Well, that (laughs) leads directly to the other thing you asked me about, which is Storyboard Pro, the software. It makes me faster. Working digitally, I am so much faster. Uh, And I work a lot of hours. My wife doesn't see me a lot. Um, Like yesterday, I spent all day working on one show and I spent all night working on another show. You know, currently right now I'm working on an HBO series called Boondocks, an animated series. And I'm also working on an HBO Max series with Kelly Cuco called Flight Attendant that hasn't come out yet. So, you know, days on one, nights on another. And then, uh, you know, I've got uh, I've got my other crew of artists. So I've got another guy doing a bunch of Florida lottery commercials right now. And I've got another guy starting on a, uh, a short film next week. So it just it just adds up over the years. You know, I've done a bunch of movies, too. I think I've done 49 films now. Those you're on for a while. You can't add up to 5,000 if you're only doing movies. But commercials pay the best. Right. Quick in, quick out, a couple days, done, get paid a mm-hmm. lot of money. So when did you start developing Storyboard Pro? I worked on development, but I didn't develop the software. Uh, so Toon okay. Boom is a Canadian company, and they created uh, Storyboard Pro and Harmony, which is their animation software. They work together. And they created that uh, Storyboard Pro specifically for animation. And one of the sales guys was traveling the country in the U.S. going to schools. And so they went to the Dave School, Digital digital Animation and Visual Effects School, the basic universal. And uh, I was the first outside hire at at Dave School uh, because I also teach at a lot of universities. So I was teaching storyboarding at that it wasn't full time. I would come in for a week or two at a time and I would, I would teach a special course. And 
so when they came and they met with the owner, Jeff Sheets, uh, they said, we'd love to show you the storyboard software. He goes, well, you should talk to Mark. He handles all things storyboarding for the school. So they came over to my studio and showed me the software and it blew my mind. It's like, oh my God, this is absolutely amazing. Just give it to me now. You don't need to leave. Sale, done. Yes, I'm in. I can see exactly how this works. But then I started working and it realized it was missing a number of elements. They had developed it only for animation, but live action has a number of things that are different. And it didn't work for live action. So I called them up and I started giving these lists all the time. You need to do this, this, and this. And how about this, this, and this? And the owner of the, of the company, the CEO of the company, Joan, uh, called me up and said, you know, you're, would you like to just come up here and work with our engineers? I said, yes, I would. So they hired me, brought me up, and I uh, spent some time with their engineers and went over how they need to make it also adjust it so it also worked for live action productions. And then I've been consulting on and off uh, ever since. I'm, I'm you know, right. This is the first year they've actually had outside ambassadors, and I'm their first ambassador. Um, so I mean, I've been heavily involved with it. I also do all the training on LinkedIn Learning on using the software, which they set me up to do as well. Uh, so that that's how that oh, worked. Cool. It was just because I reached out to them with ideas, and then they ended up hiring me to take it further. I wrote that down. And my niece uh, loves to draw manga. I'm not sure she's interested in storyboarding, but I, I wanted to make sure I, I took some notes, especially for her. Well, there's a great software program that she would like for manga called uh, uh, Clip Studio. Oh, okay. It's really does that animate her drawings, or how does it work? No, but it's it it. A lot of manga artists use it. It's it's like fifty bucks or sixty bucks, something like that. It's really inexpensive, but it's a lot of different layouts for comic book pages. And evidently, you can also add some motion to it. I've not gotten into it that much. I have it, but I haven't taken the time to learn it yet. Um, but uh, I think it's I think it's just called Clip Studio. Hold on, let me make sure I'm giving you. Where's my mouse? There it is. We'll make sure I give you the actual proper name. Uh, Clip Studio. Yep. Clip Studio. Okay. Cool. Thank you. So after you worked on that. That was just kind of in the midst of everything else. Did you start adapting it to your work? I started using it instantly. I mean, it's the, mm-hmm. the benefits of how quickly I could get things done. Um, it, it, using, if you understand how to organize using the software, it, every change I had to do with any little note, Storyboard Pro saved me 10 steps. And that's a lot of steps. So I can now do something in two seconds that used to take me three hours. Wow. So think, so yeah, it's, it's that big of a difference. So now if a client, if a client says, Hey, can you renumber this one click? I can renumber it. It used to take an hour or two to go through and either in Photoshop or on paper, you know, copy and paste and erase and renumber. It was a Royal pain. One click, everything renumbers. Uh, can we get a PDF? Yes. Can we do it in this format? Yes. One more click and it all changes. How about a movie? One click. Again, I'm, I'm creating everything at the same time. So just there, there's just absolutely no comparison on, on how it works. Like the, uh, the HBO animated series I'm on right now, I'm, the, I'm in as a consultant on this, and I'm setting up the entire pipeline of storyboarding because I have it down to a fine art on how to have everyone move smoothly. 
So for people who don't know, and I am very vague at it too, I, I did a couple short films and I had no idea how to do storyboarding. How's that process? Because I know that you need to work closely with the director. So you have the director, you have the script, and somehow you have to get inside the director's head in order to uh, right. visualize. So let's start with making sure everyone understands what we're talking about. So a storyboard is basically a comic strip version of a script uh, before it's shot. Um, and it is different between animation and live action. In animation, the story artist is the director. It, when you see director listed, that's an, over, uh, an oversight person who gives notes or it's a person who directs voiceover. But the storyboard artist in animation figures out all the breakdowns and all the shots. They, they do that. In live action, the director dictates all the shots. And the story artist is, uh, has to, as you said, perfectly phrased, get into their head. So... I've got a lot of tricks. One thing is using the same technology you and I are doing right here on Zoom. I'll share my screen as I'm drawing. They can see it in real time. And I draw it exactly as they're describing it. Sometimes I'll use toys. You know, if we've got a shot of a vehicle, you know, what angle are we seeing it? Low angle, high angle, you know, what is it? Uh, or if it's an actor, we'll either act it out or I've got my little maquettes. I've got all sorts of toys I carry with me, depending on what kind of project I'm working on. Uh, we'll act it out or they'll send me photos, any number of, of different ways. Because at this point, I've got every trick in the book on how to get into their head. Um, one of the other things I do that very few other artists do is when I know I'm going to work with a new director, I study their other recent work and I see how they, uh, how they set up their shots. Because some frame people centered, some frame them way off on one side or the other. Some like a fluid moving camera, some like jerky cameras, uh, you know, their close-ups are head and, sh head and shoulders, or some close-ups are cropping at the neck. They're all a little bit different. So I study each one. So the moment I start drawing, I'm already drawing in their visual style. The first thing I do is I read the script a few times. So the first time I read the script is just for enjoyment. The second time I read the script I'm now paying attention to specifics that are happening and, uh, and just how, what might need to, what, what might need to be effects or stunts mm -hmm. or whatnot. Cause those are the things I usually have to storyboard first. And uh, then the third time is generally with the director as we're going over the shots. I always have the printed script next to me as we're going over things so we can relate and don't miss any elements. Uh, but at that point it's the director's vision and I'll work until the director approves it. Now, I'm there helping with other ideas or what about this shot? This might help and say, you know, if we do straight on, it's a, what if we do really high angle? I'll offer suggestions. I never tread over them, but my job is to do what they want and then enhance it when possible, mm -hmm. not to take over. Like read their mind, which is as possible. Much as I can. Yeah, because yeah, at a certain point, you have been steeped in what they've done before. You're getting to know their personality, how they talk, how they describe things. Yep. Start to do that, especially if, if it's on a series, you have that opportunity as you move on. To... Well, but with a series, it's a different director for every episode. Oh, so, that's right. Um, so that now there is a specific look for a series that the showrunner oversees. So it does help to also see episodes of that very show. So, you know, who the characters are, how they act and react. But then that comes to I also ask before the first meeting a lot of questions. Can I get headshots of the characters in costume? I need photos and layouts of all the locations. If there's any special props or vehicles, I need to know what they are. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'll get as much as information as I can. And then I'll watch some recent episodes and hope, you know, 
no, like when I started on The Walking Dead, I was a fan. I didn't need to do any background because I've been watching the show since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with Stranger Things. You know, I know those shows. So I'm still asking questions because the new season is a new season. And so I'm still getting all the new uh, locations. And uh, if I'm out on location, then I'll go and I'll walk the sets myself, take my own photos for reference material, things like that. Yeah, there are times I'll bring in a background. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was a couple of times last season on The Walking Dead where we were using footage from earlier seasons for these flashbacks that we were making some changes. And for fans that are out there of of the show, this is when uh, Michonne is having flashbacks. She's been drugged and she seeing how life would have been different if she had joined Negan instead of fighting against him. Mm. So we had to put her into shots with Negan at that, that time when, uh, when he kills uh, Glenn with the baseball bat. So we were using existing footage so editorial gave me that footage and I drew Michonne over the video because I can bring video into Storyboard Pro as well. So at that point, they can see exactly what effect they need to do, how long it needs to be, everything, because I'm literally pre doing a preview of what the final video needs to look like. That's kind of incredible. I saw a documentary and I should have written down the name, but it was one of the early Storyboard artists who had worked with Hitchcock. And he didn't seem to get as much credit as he was due because a lot of the visuals that he ended up storyboarding or drawing were not what Hitchcock, it didn't come out of Hitchcock's head. It came from the storyboard artist. And Except, he had a, well, hold on. Okay, Here's okay. A little background about that. Yeah. Hitchcock was a storyboard artist before he was a director. Oh, was he? Oh, that's yeah. that's interesting. Actually, a lot of his uh, um, and a lot of the storyboards were his on his on his movies, like uh, like mm. on Birds. Hitchcock storyboarded a lot of the Birds himself. Oh, he did. Okay. Yeah. So I'm um, getting the story wrong, which is terrible. I want to be. No, right. no, you're you're not because there was <laughs> another story artist. But see that that was a failure of the story artist to sit with the director and get inside their head. What, what a lot of people do, this is a, a failing for a lot of story artists, is they'll get a script and the director will describe some things. The story artist goes away, draws it up and brings it back. And the director goes, that's not how I saw it. And now they have to redraw everything. I sit with the director and I'm, I'm quick enough where I'm sketching out as they're talking. We literally go shot by shot. And, and they're giving me approvals on that. So then I just go and clean it up. I very seldom ever have any changes or notes which is the main thing most people do, I don't have any because I'm getting it right the first time because mm-hmm. my process is a little bit different. And, um, and I have directors over and over and over say, well, I'm never working any other way again. This is the only way to work. Like the guy I'm working with right now just said he wants to bring me on to Batgirl with him because he goes on to that next. He, he said, we have an artist, but, you know, but what you do is much more efficient. I want you on the show. Great. I'm there. It's interesting because it's more efficient, but I would think that you might get some pushback from directors saying, well, I don't have time to do that. Did you ever run into that? Every once in a while till they start working with me. And then they'll they put off more other efficient. meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, rather than having three long meetings with all other artists, they've just got a slightly longer first meeting with me. Mm-hmm. And then they just review it and they can just write down if there's a couple little notes or, or script changes. But is none of this starting over because I didn't see their vision or I saw them going left instead of right, you know, things that you have to do a full redraw. I don't have to do that. It just, 
So a little longer with me in the first meeting saves a lot of other meetings in heartache. You know, I've had directors tell me, I don't use storyboards because they're never what I see in my head. At the end of my first session with them, go, my God, that's exactly what's in my head. And then I compare. I've On my website, I've edited a lot of storyboards to the finished edit. You see shot by shot, it's exactly what I've drawn. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I'm a great director. It's like I listen to great directors and I get what they want. When you sit with the director, are you drawing directly into, I saw that you're drawing digitally. Is that what you do? You draw digitally on on some sort of- It's called a Wacom Cintiq. Yeah, it's it's a monitor that you can draw on the face of it. It's like drawing on paper, except it's digital. So, and then every character I draw is on a different layer. So if the director says, oh, instead of there, can you move them over here? I just click it and drag it over. I'm not redrawing anything. Mm -hmm. So by planning how I organize the layers of my drawing, Knowing that there's going to be adjustments at some point, I've now saved myself. I could do it in a second rather than in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that adds up if there's 100 notes and it's 100 seconds rather than, you know, 100 times 10, 1,000 minutes. Big difference on how quickly I can get through things. And so, you, and you know, I plan for changes. So once you've drawn it, you can animate it to show the camera angle. Well, we're setting up the camera angles uh, in the first place. But as far as a camera move, like if it's a pan or if, or if it's a tilt or, or whatever, if there's a move or if a character runs across the screen, mm-hmm. I do that as I'm drawing. I don't do it later. Literally, as I'm drawing, I just put, all right, so I, I'm drawing this character and here's the keyframes. So rather than drawing it twice in two different positions, I just move it. And it's on a timeline. So I just hit play. And the real time, even in my thumbnails, the director can see a character move and the camera following them in literally in real time. I can set up faster than they could set up a real camera and do it. So they're flipping out. So at any moment, at, in any meeting, I can hit play and they can see their vision moving in front of them. That's amazing. I can't even imagine how huge a cost saving that is because you could say, oh, that, that costume is not going to work or... You know, we don't need all these people. We only need this. It's all, it clutters up the whole shot or. Well, that's one of the benefits of storyboarding is, is proper pre-planning in particular, because like I said, we always do stunts and effects first. So those are things that, that more people need to be involved with and have to be planned. You know, we might have a different background or add in spaceships or is this going to be a real character or a CG character? How are we going to decapitate? Where are we going to hide the ramps or the landing pads? all those types of things, I'm storyboarding and putting the notes in, in every drawing so that, you know, once we figure it out once now the other, like on walking dead, we've got five to 600 people every day on set. All of them now know exactly how we're doing something because my storyboard is literally the visual blueprint on how to do each individual shot. Is it an animatic? Is that, is that, am I saying it correctly? Yeah. Animatic is a video storyboard, right? So they'll run that in the production meetings, which is just the crew heads. So everyone can see it. Uh, Some nowadays the directors are carrying it on their iPads as well. So they can review with their director of photography or DP, but then they get the printed version. And generally what they'll do is they'll blow up my storyboards and they'll put them on foam core and they'll have that on set. So then they'll go through, we're doing this shot, and then they'll mark it off and they get it done. So once the board is all marked off, they know they can move on. Are they using that to communicate with the, the actors as well about what Sometimes, the Sometimes, yeah. Yep. Which is one of the reasons I try to draw the characters to look just like the actors. They like it, uh, and it's easier to understand the action. Uh, it's fun to do, 
mm-hmm. and I can do it pretty well. So, uh, and the actors love it. The producers love it. So, do you have any plans to maybe collect that artwork in a book? Well, my my storyboard uh, book has over a thousand samples in it, so I have a lot of that. The Walking Dead is owned by AMC, and they have they've sent out they've got like these surprise boxes for fans, and they've included my storyboards in those. Wow! Um, but I don't own the rights to any of that. Uh, AMC uh, Network owns all the rights to the storyboards on the project. I have mixed feelings about that. <laughs> Well, actually, by law, it has to be that way. Uh, so, uh, so don't have mixed feelings about it. There's, there's no way around it. It's not an original piece of art. Um, when, whenever you're working on something like that, it's not just my piece of artwork I'm drawing and they decide to license it. That's not what's happening. Everything I'm drawing is based on the script, which has a lot of people involved in it. And the director's vision, I'm putting down the director's vision and the DP has their vision and the stunt coordinator figures out what they need and I'm illustrating that. So it's not an original piece. And whenever you've got a group, it's whoever overseas is paying for that group legally will always own all of that. So it, it absolutely makes sense. Yeah, and I'm glad that you you described that because I think some people lean heavily on the, well, I'm an artist and it's my work. But what you described is not even just the business arrangement. It has to do with a, a lot of people's vision and, and intellectual property who owns exactly. what. Well, I'm not doing it alone. That's the other yeah. thing, the intellectual property. I don't own the characters to start with. So um, understanding the law helps. I mean, I studied, uh, I studied copyright law, so I know it very well. Um, and, and I keep up with it. I read a lot of white papers. On, on it. I talk to attorneys at events. And, and so I, I really do try to keep up as much as I can on, on those things because mm-hmm. it helps to not make stupid arguments if you understand what's going on and, yeah. and real reasoning behind things. So, so I understand it. And if, if you're not making bad arguments, look, I'll fight for things if I need, think they need to be fought for. But who owns the rights to a storyboard? I know I don't own the rights. Now, that doesn't mean I can't get the rights because I have on, on, for my books. I've gotten it, but I license it. I ask for it. And, and mm-hmm. usually I don't have to pay for it since I'm the one who did it. Um, at times I would probably have to. Usually I, I haven't had to at all on my, other, uh, on my other books. See, that's a good thing for people to know too because there, there are options. Yeah. Yeah. Was that the first time that people were using like, the, the animatics and the Storyboard uh, Pro in that way? No, it's probably been used a lot, but not many live action artists use that software. They're used to working either Photoshop or, or you know, some guys, I guess, are still on paper. Um, but so and I've been trying to change that. I do a lot of lecturing on it. I uh, do a lot of posting on it. And uh, it's one of one of the ambassadors. So I, I speak about it constantly. Mm-hmm. Some of the older guard on uh, live action story artists don't want to learn something new. I've been forcing the issue. If, the, if people work for me, they have to use it. So my studio is a Storyboard Pro studio. We, it's part of the pipeline. Uh, if you don't know it, you can't work for me. So, I mean, that's one, one way to handle it. Uh, but the other thing is I also prove how it's faster and better. So once I show somebody, generally there's not an argument. I do know when I work with producers and directors, they keep saying, why doesn't everyone work this way? I can't answer that because I'm doing everything I can to make sure they do. Mm-hmm. Now, it is the main software used at virtually every, every studio, animation studio. Uh, live action, it's been slower, but I'll change it. Yeah, especially since you're an ambassador. Yep. 
Have you actually described what animatics are for people who don't know what that is? An animatic is it's basically just taking storyboards and putting um, uh, movement and audio to it. So anytime, anytime if you just hit a movie, play a movie file with storyboards, even if it's just still images, it's an animatic. It, it, watching, watching a video storyboard is an animatic. It reminds me of the flip books. Do you know what a flip book is? That's something. Yeah, I... but even flip books have a lot of motion. We don't do that that much motion in it. You know, that's it's mm-hmm. still a, sim- a different drawing on every page as you as you flip through it. Right. Um, these we call these eye blinks and tail wags. We do. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, if a character is walking across the screen, I'm not drawing the arms pumping and the legs crossing. I right. do one walk and then slide the character across. Um, it's, it, it it accomplishes the exact same thing in, in less time. Uh, it, in storyboarding, we just need to get across what the action is. I don't have to actually animate it. Right. So, you know, the arrows and that kind of thing, which I'm not yep. very good at reading those. Well, if you're not good at reading them, it means it's a poor storyboard. Well, a I good think... storyboard, you're going to know. <laughs> no, yeah, seriously. I've, I think I finally figured out, like, the arrow means that's the direction it's going. Uh, not necessarily. Oh, it's not. Oh. Because nope. it could be. It, it, it's either an object movement or a camera movement or both. And if there's if there's any uh, if there's any confusion, it's a bad storyboard because you simply just write camera in the era if it's a camera movement. Oh, so um, I'm constantly talking to story artists about that, too. If there is a question, the storyboard has failed. It's not the person reading it. We need to answer all. We're there to answer questions, not create questions. So even somebody who's not trained could read a storyboard if if it's done properly. Because I was looking at one, and I wanted to bring this up because I thought it was interesting. It's basically one of the monsters, and he's fighting this guy, and it's next to the elevator. It's that one where he pushes the monster into the elevator shaft, and it goes down. Well, I is know it, there's is a it beta, and oh, that, that that's the, from The Walking Dead. So yeah. Beta's yeah, not yeah. necessarily a monster. He's just a very large man with oh, a, a oh. dead skin on his face. Yeah. Okay, he looked kind of yeah. scary to me. So. Yeah. I finally got something because there's a there's a point where the knife gets thrown out of his hand and there's mm. an arrow with the right. knife. of the, tra- the tracking the knife yeah yeah and that's the first time that I felt like I've looked at a storyboard not that I've looked at a lot so that I understood oh it's the knife so I knew what the object was and I knew from the way it was laid out mm-hmm. that the, that it had been thrown across the room yep that's the goal it. that at a glance oh. you understand it yeah that's amazing. And one thing I noticed was those actions looked a little bit like martial arts. Was it some martial arts? Quite, uh, quite a bit. In fact, it's, it's funny you bring that up. Um, you remember the old uh, animated series, Hanna-Barbera animated series called Hong Kong Fui? Maybe. You might recognize <laughs> if you saw it. it yeah. Catman Scruthers did the voice. Uh, Hong Kong Fui! <laughs> he was this, uh, this dog that, that was a martial arts expert. Yes! I remember that. Right. Okay. okay. Yeah. Hong Kong Fui. <laughs> so I, I was hired as head of story. We, we ended up only doing a, a small piece of it. Uh, Warner Brothers didn't give us the rest of the money, but um, I was hired on as head of story because I'm also a second degree black belt national champion in Taekwondo. So not only drawing it, but I understood the martial arts aspect of it. So he said, yeah, you're obviously the one because you understand what we're going to be doing. I felt that when I was looking at the pictures, because my brother studied Taekwondo and now is studying. Oh, it just went out of my head. Well, there's judo, hapkido. Aikido. Yeah. And he teaches sword fighting as well. Nice. So do you feel like there's other things like that that have 
I hate to say bled, but that's the that's the <laughs> that's the word I have in my head that's bled from your life into into your work. Well, I'm a smart ass, so I always add humor in. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and I and I love coming up with that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it it, it can't help but uh, put your personal life into things. Um, you know, in fact, it's funny because the epilogue of my memoir, uh, where the you had mentioned earlier, where the last two guys attacked me in the hallway after the court trial, mm-hmm. that sequence has always been burned in my mind because obviously I lived it. So. Uh, so I'm, fin- I'm doing a an anim- full animatic of that epilogue that I'm going to be posting onto my website once it's done. Oh, cool. Um, and you can't get more personal than that. I mean, I'm literally putting my life there, but it's so cool because I'm really good at what I do. So I can, I can really show you what I lived through on something. So I'm going to keep, you know, as I have time, uh, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing little portions of the book visualized so you can see, literally see what I did. Yeah. Uh, I'll look forward to seeing that. It is interesting because when I started to read the book, I'm like going, damn, this is a script. I mean, I know it's written like, <laughs> you know, it's copy, but, and I know you said you had, you had played around with it as a script initially. And I did. Do, and do it you, sucked. Yeah. And it sucked. Um, you know, that's okay. We all have shitty first yeah. drafts. Do you have any plans to make it a movie, a personal passion project? I'm in early discussions with the studio right now. So, yeah. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and who do you want to play you like in your in your that's gonna fantasy? be tough because i was a yeah. different because i was a different kid being short and as muscular as i was and it's and it's not that i'm bragging about being muscular but it was key to the character because yes. of, of what i was able, i mean you read the book my strength was really key to how i was able to survive a lot of those instances yeah so it, it's finding someone as slight yet muscular and as short Mm-hmm. as me, uh, as I was then, it will be tough. So I, I'm purposely not trying to find that person now Yeah, because it all, it takes a year or two to grow out of that. So I don't know how, you know, when we'll get a green light, if we'll get a green light. Right. I'll worry about that then. Now I'm always thinking about the actors uh, for my parents. The, the last guy I thought would work well for my dad, uh, got too old and died. So th- that, that wouldn't work. But uh, and now I'm blanking on her name. The lead actress in Stranger Things. Oh, um, yeah. The mom? Is that yeah. Winona Ryder. And I love her. She was in Heather's. Yeah, I love that. Uh, yeah. yeah. I want her to play my mom. I, she's, she's perfect. She looks like yeah. my mom. She's absolutely perfect. Got the same strength and same. Um, uh, she can also be frightened. You know, all those things that we went through. I know she could nail it. Your mom looks pretty young in those in those pictures, not that this is a slam. I hope she doesn't hear this podcast, but. Um. <laughs> well, so, some of those photos though were from, uh, of my mom where, when she was standing up against a tree is before these events happened. That was earlier okay. in my life. So uh, not everything was exactly at that time. So Yeah, it, I was, uh, because I've done some, some casting when I was doing, uh, I was part of a, a hobbyist group that made film. So I can't help it when I look at stuff. I'm like, I wonder who that, who would I have? To play because your your dad was very blonde, very kind of all American looking. Well, no, he had jet black hair at the time, but he became really, really gray. It's just you were looking at black oh, and white photos. Oh, he wasn't. Um, he had white so, hair. Yeah, he, yeah, he went white hair. Uh, pretty early, um, but Chris Pratt would be good, maybe. He's not old, he's enough, not old enough yet. Now, my dad was in his mid to late forties, um, probably late. Yeah. 
Yeah, about 47, 48 oh, at the time. he looks like a baby face in those pictures, you know. Yeah, yeah, he did. But he was a big, you know, he was a big farm boy. Yeah. So. That'll be interesting to see that contrast is really important. What I had in mind when we were talking about, you know, the possibility of some somebody who, you know, you might end up, you know, discovering a new talent is uh, going to the taekwondo's studios because some of those kids are very lean and small but they're strong and they've got that yep. they might have that six pack that's a, that's, that's a good point very good possibility. just off the top of my head <laughs> that'll be a fun problem to solve i yes. gotta tell you i can't wait for that yes, problem i think that that will be the easier the easiest of your problems i'm sure yeah yeah we've talked about a lot of things so is that basically what you do? This is your process at this point. It's replaced 10 steps or six steps when you used to do, an, uh, not animation, but the storyboard. The, the animatics. Yeah. Right. So is it storyboard and the animatics, animatics just naturally go together? Yeah. I can't do one without the other, the way the song, you know, I'm literally drawing on a timeline. Right. So it's happening whether we end up using it or uh, using the animatic mm-hmm. or not. So why not just hit play and be able to uh, be able to see it? And, and directors love it. It also helps me better, be a better story artist because I can see if it's cutting together. If it makes sense in still images, it's going to make even more sense with a great actor. Right. Um, so it's it, it's a way for us to really test the sequences and make sure we have all the right shots. I think it's great. And I think it'd be great for somebody who's learning how to direct because it will help them learn to visualize things better. Like I'm great at hearing dialogue, but sometimes I'm like, I, I don't know why I want this to be wide. <laughs> don't know if this should be close up. I always think in terms of media, I mean, I, I see it, but it isn't like articulated in my head in a way. Right. Yeah. Let me, let me look at those. Let me find those questions. I have a lot of things. Okay. I think okay. I found them and I appreciate you going over. Sure. Um, yeah, we're having a yeah, good time. That's, that's what this is all about. Okay. This is fun. Cause I got like three or four people. I said, I'm going to be in, I didn't tell them your name. I think this is going to be fun when they find out who I, I interviewed. Cato was curious about tips for communicating with directors, especially about finding the beats and rhythms of the film. And how do storyboards help find that rhythm using a 2D medium? But yours, do you think of animatics as being 2D? No, it's, it's, I'm drawing in 2D, but if, if a shot needs to have three, a 3D camera move, I can add that in mm-hmm. too, even with 2D drawings. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I can import 3D elements or 3D backgrounds if it exists for me already. Uh, it's so showing depth is just understanding perspective and then how to use the 3d tools and the software. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, as far as finding the, uh, the tone, you know, on walking dead, I know what the tone is cause I'm on the show or I watch the mm-hmm. show, you know, every show has a slightly different tone and sometimes I'm only in for a few key shots. So it's, it's what gets across the story in that one shot. And the director needs to tell me mm-hmm. that now how we come to that. There are times, like there was uh, on, I'm trying to think a good example. There was in season 10 of the walking dead, there's an episode, a uh, big battle episode that uh, Greg Nicotero, the executive producer was directing. And he wanted the, uh, the uh, big attack on Hilltop to have the same kind of frenetic feel of the 20 minute war sequence from uh, finding private Ryan. Is it finding private Ryan? I think so. Uh, where the, the, the storming Normandy. And so we watched it 
And he would say, see that shot? See how the foreground is moving there? See how these people are moving through? You know, that's what I want to get across here. So, you know, on, uh, on a number of shots, he didn't specify, I want this and this and this. We would talk through those things. I would use that for inspiration, knowing the location that we were going to be shooting in. And I created the shots that he wanted. Then we'd go over it and he'd give me notes on a few. So watching existing things sometimes helps us get figure out the rhythm. Other times I'll walk a location with the director and we'll stage it and act it out ourselves. Oh, wow. Nothing like actually being there. We'll act it out and take pictures or, you know, uh, sometimes even video. And, uh, and we'll, we'll create together how to come up with the right shots. Um, so it's every project and every director is different. So I can't do the same things with every director. And we don't always have access, especially now with COVID. I don't have access to go out to these locations. So now we're starting to use more uh, virtual locations. So there's some software I was, uh, was playing around with the other day that um, uh, Third Floor, which is a previs company, has created. And I talked to the, uh, to the owners of the studio and the creators of the software will allow you to do virtual location scouting now which is really exciting wow. to be able to do some of that stuff. So I'm trying to stay at the forefront of all that and take advantage as much as I can. Wow. Yeah. I think um, part of what I think she was looking for is, uh, you know, finding the beats and rhythm of the film. That's partly what you were saying uh, with watching. Well, looking yeah. at something that exists helps give you yeah. the beat. I mean, if they want to emulate the feeling of something, well, let's watch yeah. that. What is yeah. it about that? And then uh, try to emulate that with the shots, cutting, pacing, whatever. So, uh, and, and then there are times just looking at the storyboards, play it. No, keep, keep on this shot longer. I want them to sit there for a while before then they move. So it's a part of that's interactive. We'll find it. Yeah. Sometimes it's just playing until you find it. Yeah, sometimes you can feel that viscerally. Alexa, my friend Alexa said she would love to, again, it's, it's a similar kind of question, how they work with a director to incorporate any special shots they have in mind. Well, I, I talked about a lot of that yeah. earlier, you know, it's toys, it's acting it out. Sometimes they'll take reference photos. Uh, some uh, will, uh, they'll, they'll give me an overhead uh, blueprint of, of the layout. And then we'll mark here, the, you know, camera is going to be here, another camera here, they run through here. So it's, it's literally anything and everything. Toys help a lot, you know, action figures, uh, hot wheels, uh, or walking location. Mm-hmm. So I'll pull all of it out at different times. It, it's whatever it takes. And like I said, every, every, every element, which is one of the things I love about this industry, it's never boring. Every director is different. Every script is different. Every set of actions is different. Um, but I can learn from each one. That I can then bring on to other, other mm-hmm. projects. Definitely. Great. I'm not sure appreciate that. So David asks, what types of work and projects would somebody interested in this field be engaged in early? And he's thinking about middle school, high schools, or even college students, uh, or people in related areas that want to make a leap. To be a story artist, you have to be able to draw anything quickly. It's, it's a speed thing. We're not illustrators. Uh, doesn't mean we can't be an illustrator. But that's not what storyboarding is not illustration. Storyboarding is visually telling a story. There is a huge difference. Um, each individual drawing I do might not look very pretty, but if it's accurate and tells you a story, it's a success. So you have to understand that going in. Don't be so precious about your work because you're going to throw a lot of it out. Script changes all of a sudden. All right, these 50 drawings, we don't need anymore. Redo it this way. There's no fighting about that. You just do it. And it, but that takes a little bit. You got to get you got to get through that. Um, 
So being able to draw quickly, understanding editing helps tremendously. How something is cut together so it tells a story, you know, helps a lot. Understanding lenses. A director will say, I want a long lens on this and a wide angle lens on this. Well, how does that change how you're visually telling a story? Well, it changes it a lot. You have to understand that. Um, how, to, how to direct something. Is your camera moving or is it stationary? They tell two different stories. You know, a lot of people just float a camera around. Well, that's nonsense. Move the camera when it's supposed to be moving because every single thing you do changes the story you're telling. So you've got to understand all aspects of it. The more you understand special effects and how they're done, the better you're going to be able to break down your storyboard to help the rest of the crew. So, you know, if someone says uh, we're going to do a garbage mat here, what does that mean? How do you illustrate it? How do you mark it? Do you understand what the hell they're talking about? Because if it's in the meeting, it needs to be on the storyboards. So, you know, again, the more you know about all aspects of production, the better story artist you're going to be. It's a lot more than just drawing. Yeah, that's a really good point. So getting getting a degree. You can study without getting that's a degree. True. You can study by watching things, watching behind mm-hmm. the scenes. With the, on, on that first movie, I'll give you an example. Um, I didn't learn special effects except for explosions. Uh, I didn't learn special effects in college. I learned it by reading the magazine Cinefix. I would I read everyone cover to cover because it really breaks down how you do different things. So my first movie on uh, on Beyond Infinity, which the release title is Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity, <laughs> it's midnight classic. All right. So here I am at Corman Studio, and uh, this one shot we need to make this uh, this gigantic room, and it was a very tiny set. How do you make it look big? Well, let's let's build a foreground miniature so that everything is in camera because we didn't have a budget to do any compositing. This is before After Effects existed. So I said, yeah, I know how to do that. And so I designed a foreground miniature and I gave the plans to everybody. And we built this miniature that went close to camera and then the set's way in the background, but they lined up perfectly and it made in camera. Now this tiny set look really gigantic. I learned how to do that by reading Cinefix magazine and paying attention to it. And for someone went to use it, it worked. Wow. And the other thing on that, I've been doing this. Well, I've been in the industry now 34, yeah, 34 years. I've never been asked if I have a degree. I don't have it on my resume. I don't really use a resume anymore. Um, I've never even been asked if I have a degree. I don't list it. It's irrelevant. No one cares. They care what you can do. It doesn't matter if you have a degree. Good point. Look, if you're an engineer, you have to have a degree. Yeah. If you're a lawyer, you have to have a Doctor. degree. You work in the creative arts, <laughs> go for a degree. I have a degree. I have a double major. But um, you know, but I used it to learn and get better. I didn't do it for grades. I care less what my grades were. I wanted to learn. And so I, you know, I went with that attitude. Grades are irrelevant. It's good to say that because people get very attached, as I did, to grades. Um, <laughs> so Bracken wonder what's most difficult to storyboard, for example, intimacy versus action. I'm not sure what he means by intimacy. Maybe he means emotion. No, he means sex scenes. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> I didn't even look at it that way. <laughs> um, Are you going to storyboard sex scenes? Yeah, oh, I'm okay. sure. <laughs> um, so what's difficult is the camera angle. So, you know, shooting someone straight on, whether it's a special effect, is easy. But shooting someone, if you've got a, a, a fisheye lens down at their feet looking up at them, 
that's much more difficult to draw because it's a weird perspective and everything's out of proportion. So what gets difficult are weird camera angles. Um, not necessarily what the scene is, but weird camera angles. Or if you're drawing the Sequest ship, which looked like a giant squid, basically, drawing that from every angle was very difficult because it was such a bizarre shape. It wasn't just a tube. Um, I'll never forget what it looks like because I had to draw it so much. You know, luckily, they uh, in the second season, they uh, Ravel made uh, plastic models. So I glued the model together and I used it as reference. So I would hold it and, and be able to draw it that way. That's very cool, actually. Use tricks like cars take time. So find pictures and trace them is a good, a good thing. There's no such thing as cheating. I hate it when people say, you trace that. Well, it gives a shit. <laughs> I got it done and I got it out. You know how many directors have ever ch- uh, chastised me for tracing something? None. They don't care. What they care is how it looks and how quickly I get right. it to this them. This is an art. Not the purpose of it. And, and, and what would it matter anyway? I mean, the grandmasters used to trace. That's how they would get the people to look so perfect. There's actually a process of, of using mirrors and glass that they used to get things to be exactly as they were looking at them. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> they were great then. It'll be great now. I just have different mm-hmm. tools. He wondered, this is the same person, he wonders, is, are there certain genres that are easier or harder to storyboard? And it seems like this is going to be like, yes. oh, really? Okay. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Comedy is the hardest. Because that has to do with timing and expression and physical action. and Every single thing about comedy is harder than any other thing. Drama is the easiest and everything else falls in between. Because drama, you want to make something dramatic, just hold on a shot for a long time it becomes dramatic. But comedy, it's so subjective and there's so many things. Some, a lot of times simplifying a shot makes something funnier, straight on, rather than you know a quarter angle, a three-quarter angle on something uh, is, is better. Um, but how you set up something for humor is by far the most difficult. I mean, there's not even a comparison. And then beyond that, it's if you've got something like the Avengers, which I did not work on, you know, there's so many elements to each shot. Those become difficult just to figure it out. It's a lot easier to storyboard than it is to shoot it. But with the storyboard, then comes all the other elements of the breakdowns on, you know, who is shot live, what's animation, what's composited, what are the different elements, where are you going to do it, what are set extensions. You know, that comes from part of the story artist, but then the effects and directors and producers and everyone else who comes in and they start making their notes on it. So, yeah, that sounds very complex. You don't always have to know every aspect, but I try to because I can help production more the more I understand. Yeah, yeah I hadn't thought about all those elements. Wow. Oh, so much to it. Seeing you answered the why question, and he wondered if it was also is a stylistic or personal interest. A certain journey. Oh, so. Well, yeah, I mean, I love so many different aspects of what I do. Uh, I'm really good at humor. I understand the camera angles and timing and pacing, and I add a lot of humor to the things I'm on. Uh, it's it's something that I enjoy. So stylistic, I end up picking up a lot of those shots, especially like if I'm on a, a movie where I've got a lot of story artists working with me, I cast each shot to the different story artists. I know this person is really good at this kind of action. This person is better at drama, whatever. Um, so I will cast my artists accordingly. And then the things I think are the most kick-ass are the ones I take for myself. <laughs> <laughs> As is your prerogative. <laughs> You're the boss. <laughs> Bet. Um, 
he wondered, uh, Bracken also wondered, what are the challenges of storyboarding a script versus a book? Is it easier to do a story? I don't storyboard books. I storyboard yeah. scripts. If, if a book is getting turned into a movie, it's always a script yeah, that, first. That makes so sense to me. I only work from scripts. Um, except for my except own. Except for your own. <laughs> I'm storyboarding my own that's, memoir. That's, yeah. that's special. That's, that's different. <laughs> Let's see. Can you differentiate an average versus an, a great script? Yes. Um, well, I mean, there's a lot to it. Char- really, character and dialogue is one of the biggest things. But, you know, a great script um, tell, uh, shows you, doesn't tell you. So it's the action. Do you learn what's happening, what people are feeling uh, in reactions by being shown? Or is it someone sitting there and telling you how you should feel? you know, in, in dialogue. So the more you can show instead of tell the better. If, if a, if a script or finished piece can tell an entire story without a line of dialogue, it's better than one with a hundred lines of dialogue. Uh, That's, that's a big thing. Um, And then there's other elements like there's always, you know, there's adages that I love. Never answer a yes or no question with yes or no. So for instance, Mm -hmm. Uh, did you beat your wife? No, I don't get much out of that. There's no character whatsoever. But if someone says, did you beat your wife? And I say, not yet. Whole different answer and response and a lot more character and background by not saying yes or no. So if you can ever avoid yes or no, it's going to be better. That's really interesting because I've always focused on the question. Don't ask yes or no questions. Although in improv, everything. Oh, always ask yes or no questions. Oh, always. really? Answer them with a yes or because no. Because in, in, in improv, you're always going to answer yes and. So it's a little bit different. I suppose you could say yes and without well, saying yes answer. and and. Yeah. But that's not, but yes and has nothing to do with the question. Yes and is following up whatever suggestion or setup the person in improv gives you is you, if someone says, I've got a chicken on my head, you say, yes. (laughs) And now it's laying eggs in your ear. You never say, no, it's not. Cause that takes all the energy out and you've now broken the primary rule of improv. I've also taught, I've also worked with improv on, on people I helped to how to pitch. So, um, and improv is awesome. I'm a huge fan of it. I don't do it. I I just show people how to use it in pitching. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of my best friends uh, is an improv actor and oh i just i absolutely i love everything about it but that yes and is powerful has nothing to do with the question that's about setup that's a really good point yeah do you have anything else any personal things that you're doing yeah i mean you know i always have other things you know right now i'm i'm doing a lot on on my memoir on attack um you know background behind the scenes videos uh, marketing on it interviews uh, the animatics and storyboards I'm creating on it. Cause I'm, I want to really be able to showcase my vision on how I see it. So I've been working on that for a while now. I'll continue. A friend of mine wrote a book that um, he turned into a script and I thought one of the sequences in the script was fantastic. So I'm helping him on pitching it. So I, I created an animatic of it and, um, and it turned out really fantastic. So that was a fun thing to help a friend out and uh, uh but a talented friend mm-hmm. so it was it was that was that was really cool um you know luckily even the projects that i get paid to do are fun for me you know it's like right now on this hbo show 
I'm having a blast drawing. You know, Kelly Kuko uh, plays, a, she's the key, uh, name character with the flight attendant. And I can't tell you really anything right. about it. It's a crazy ride, and 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 it's fun. Like I'm doing the big auto accident sequence right now. Um, uh, literally, I'll be back on as soon as we hang up. I'm back on on that. Uh, so you know, those kind of things are fun. I, I haven't done a whole lot of auto auto crashes. I've done a few, mm-hmm. but uh, but the, this is a fun one to draw. And uh, you know, I'm looking forward to getting going back on Stranger Things. We were right in the middle of an episode when everything got shut down, so I'm waiting for that to come back up. Uh, you know, I, one of the directors has asked if I would come on to uh, Batgirl with him. I haven't worked on that show, so that would be fun. I love doing superhero mm-hmm. things. Yeah, I was a huge comic book fan and collector growing up. So anytime I get to do comic book or superhero projects, which I, now I've done quite a few, it's 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 it. The kid in me has come back out. It's like ah, I get to draw superheroes. <laughs> It seems like there's a direct line from loving comics to drawing comics to storyboarding, you know, and, and, you Absolutely. know, one of your little video clips was talking about, I think it was an older one we were talking about. Isn't just a, it isn't just a punch. It's like this massive thing. Everything is, is big, is loud. It's, it's extreme. It's big. I don't know how to explain it. I didn't watch a lot of cartoons, but I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, like you don't just like smash the strawberry. It explodes, you know, that kind of thing. Well, the way I look at animation is animation is best when it does something live action can't. So, yeah. you know, that, that's the yeah. opportunity to do something beyond what I could do if I just had a camera and a person. You know, that's when animation gets mm-hmm. great. That's that's fun. You are probably working so much, you don't have time to watch anything, but do you have time to watch anything? And what are you watching? I try to. You know, you know, while I'm eating dinner uh, or real late at night as I'm passing out, I'll watch things. Um, I love, uh, well, there's a few things in particular. The Boys is probably my favorite show. I can't wait for the next season to come out. Uh, Umbrella Academy was amazing. Ozark has got me fascinated. The Walking Dead. Uh, Rick and Morty. I freaking love that animation. Um, so there's a, there's a few. I can't. I generally can't get wrapped up in too many because you know, I just I don't have a whole lot of time to sit around. I mean, generally I'll work until dinner, have dinner with my family, and then I go back to work. Wow. So um, generally Sunday nights we'll try to watch something you know, where I'll take the evening off. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I'm pretty much. Now I still take a break. I still skateboard. So I, I take physical breaks and I'll go skateboarding um, or Frisbee golf is a big sport of mine. My whole family plays tennis. So I pick that up so I can get some exercise outside. I've never heard of Frisbee golf. I'm afraid. Oh my God. It's so fun. It, it's all, there's so many courses in California. <laughs> uh, luckily there's a bunch here in Atlanta too. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's like regular golf, but with special Frisbees that go really far. And, uh, and there's a, uh, a, a chains hanging over a basket Then the Frisbee hits the chain, stops and drops in the basket. And that's the hole. It's awesome. Wow. So it's kind of like, there's a course, obviously like a golf course. Yeah. And then you 18 holes, you, yep. you throw your Frisbee or whatever the correct language is. And, um, is it a yep. smaller Frisbee or. Yep. Slightly smaller, uh, a lot heavier. You don't want to catch one. It'll break your hand. Uh, but yeah, these, these will go anywhere from 200 to 500 feet wow. and, uh, and they're all different. There's putters and drivers in mid range, just like golf clubs. Uh, everyone has their favorites and you yeah. don't throw it with so your I've hands. You throw it with the, you throw it with something. 
throw me into this. Yeah. Uh, I got my kids into it. My wife is into it. I, I have two golf, uh, Frisbee golf holes in my backyard. So they practice back here behind the house. And uh, we go out to Frisbee golf courses. There's a bunch of them around us. We try different ones all the time. Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> That's really fun. I've never heard of that. See, this is one of the things I love about doing this is I learned something new. I learned, I've learned lots of things from you today, obviously. Um, so with COVID, you're obviously, you're able to do some work at home because they, they can develop scripts, but it, shooting obviously is stopped. Do, do they have any? Yes, live action shooting is stopped. Animation has never stopped. Uh, that, that keeps going because people can work remotely. Yeah. Um, live action is just now starting to come back uh, because they figured out how to keep people safe. So hopefully they're quarantining um, like the cast in a certain place for quite a while and keep testing them. Not all, it depends on, depends on the production. It's not always possible. Oh. You know, some people have kids, so you can't quarantine a whole family. Um, but, uh, but like Tyler Perry, just quarantine cast and crew, but he can shoot a whole season in two weeks. No one else can wow. do that. It's in his schedule. Shooting schedule is insane. Um, and he also owns a giant area where he can put everyone up at the same time. So that's kind of a different beast. Uh, but you know, there's protocols that the whole industry has been working very hard on, on keeping everyone safe. Um, it's going to slow down production, uh, but, uh, but it lets us, allows us to do it. So I don't have to worry about it because I can work from here in my studio as easily as I can on a location. It makes no difference on, on the director's, uh, ability to work with me because the way I, I make it easy for them. It's I, I shoulder that I make it easy on them five minutes into the first meeting. They're like, Oh yeah, this is great. And you can do that. You can meet with the director. Just, just like, like this, this, except instead of seeing my face, you'd see, uh, see what I'm right. drawing. Give me notes just like I'm sitting mm-hmm. next to you. That's, that's cool. That's lucky too, that you, that your work allows you to work that way. So you can continue to work and well, I built, I was one of the first ones to, to work this way. So I kind of pioneered the process. I think you pioneered a lot of things, Mark. <laughs> I have, yeah. It should say, instead of writer and storyboard, I should be a Mark Simon pioneer. <laughs> well, well, a couple, a couple industry rags called me the godfather of storyboarding. So I took that on. I thought, well, that sounds cool. Uh, so. Yeah. I wanted so. to ask you about that. I mean, have you taken anybody out or... Uh... <laughs> Not on purpose, but I'm pretty deadly with a pencil. I bet. Well, you know, I think I'm sure I saw a pencil and an eye somewhere. Um, But why do they call you the Godfather? Is it because you've made so many? uh... Because I've I've helped advance the industry so much. So at this point, you know, two different articles called me the Godfather of storyboarding. I think one stole it from the other, and I just thought, yeah, awesome. I like that. That I'm. I just take it on. So yep. (laughs) Don't mess with me. (laughs) <laughs> Godfather. <laughs> do you do impersonations as well? <laughs> no. Like, no, that's no. not my skill set. Cool. Um, is there is there anything else that you would like to talk about that we haven't touched on? I'm sure you could talk for a long time, especially if you're a teacher and all all the years that you've done it. You know, your learning. Like, you know, there's so many different things I could talk about, but you know. If anyone's interested in, in reading my memoir, it's it's on Amazon, both on Kindle and and print. So it's it's easy. Just attacked. You look up my name and attacked. It pops right up. Yeah, that's where I got it. I downloaded it on my Kindle. That's great. Cool. Well, I want to thank you for coming on Geeks in the Green Room. You definitely qualify as a geek. <laughs> <laughs> 
a geek masquerading as a super successful person, but it just shows you you can be both. Anything you're passionate in makes it very easy to be successful. There's one thing I'd like to ask you to do. I've been asking all my all my people to do it. And since you were in theater, I think you might remember this, but you do remember what the stage manager says to the cast when it's almost time, they call places, right? You right. remember that? Yep. So um, I ask I ask my guests to to do a, yeah, a couple versions of places, please. And then the response. Do you remember what the do you know what the response is to places? No, I don't remember that. No. Uh, thank you, places. Thank you, places. Because I don't think we ever said that. Well, you okay. know why? Because actors notoriously don't listen to anybody except maybe on stage if they're doing a good job. And especially like in community theater or high school, that, that was the way the stage manager knew you were listening to them was to get a response from you. So, I think that's the actors being a smart ass. <laughs> places, everyone. All right. Thank you, places. <laughs> okay. Um, that's an eye roll. <laughs> All right, so you want that? Sure, sure. Give, give me, give All it right. to me. All right, quiet on the set. Places, everyone. Yeah, thank you, places. There you go. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, you might as well finish it with a smart ass, uh, smart ass. Thank you, places. <laughs> yeah, it worked for me well. It only gave me, only caused death threats. So sure. Wait, didn't you say you stage? <laughs> uh, didn't you say you you? You weren't a stage manager. That wasn't what you did. I was a backstage, backstage manager. Yeah, That's so different. All, moving all the set pieces and everything. So you yeah. weren't you weren't corralling the cats. I mean, the actors. No, I did everything behind the actors. Okay. <laughs> but the actors is probably good. You were probably saner working with the crew than trying to deal with, with the theater. Yeah. I would date the actors, but <laughs> that, was, that was after. That's a whole other kind of trouble. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to meet you. And I'm honored that you came on my burgeoning baby podcast. Well, look, you make this really fun. It was really easy to spend, to spend this time talking with you. So I'm sure it'll be fantastic. And I'm glad I'm on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing your time with us today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we had making it. Check out the show notes for info and links mentioned in the show. You've also been listening to Scott Joplin's The Strenuous Life from 1902, generously provided here by Ragnar Helsbong's wonderful website, ragsrag.com. Share the love by giving us an awesome review and rating on Apple Podcasts. And please pass the show around to your friends and family. And remember to subscribe here wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you want to get into the act, like the Geeks in the Green Room Facebook page. I'm your host, Heather Morrison. See you next time on Geeks in the Green Room.